0: and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And today, my friends, we have perhaps the holy grail of all Staff Picks episodes, one of my all-time favorite movies, a movie that means so much to me, I have so much to say about it. It's a little higher profile than most of the movies I pick on staff picks, but I don't care just because I want to talk about this movie and I want to make the argument that may be debatable, we may get into this, that I think Major League is the single greatest sports movie of all time. So, here we are. Uh, Welcome to my show. Very excited about this one. We're going to jump right into it because I have a whole ton of content on this one. I've been prepping for this episode for like two months. Uh, My guest for this episode... Let's see, you may have seen him on reality TV, on TV show Survivor, as a lot of my uh, guests kind of come from that world, but we're not really, we don't really know each other through reality TV so much as we know the, the fact that we're both stand-up comedians and we're basically both baseball fans. We're big baseball guys, and I've always wanted to get him on a show just because it's fun to listen to baseball geeks just geek out about the sport, and I am a huge nerd, and I'm assuming he is too. So I'm welcoming to the show for the uh, first time on Staff Picks, uh, you may know him from Sur- Survivor South Pacific, Albert Estrada.
1: Mario, thanks for having me, man. Pumped. I am excited to be on here.
0: <laughs> I'm so excited. We, you and I have exchanged emails for months, but this is the first time we've ever actually met.
1: We've exchanged emails. We've uh, DM'd on Twitter. We shared dick pics. I mean, we've been communicating for a, a while now, and it's this is nice to finally actually hear your voice. I was surprised by your voice, but it's great to to create, to actually connect with you directly.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. I just think people would find that funny. So Albert thought my nationality was a little different than it would be when he actually heard my voice.
1: I mean, if if listen, if 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 uh, I, I listen, I and I've been. A uh, fan of the funny 115, some of your, you know, uh, writing projects. So I, I actually hadn't heard any of your audio stuff, but come on, if you get invited to talk about baseball. By a guy named Mario Lanza. Immediately, you're going to think, okay, this guy is a big fan of Telemundo, like Univision. Like, this is, we're going to have, there's going to be a little bit, there's going to be a lot of questions about Hispanic heritage. And turns out, I couldn't have been more wrong. Yeah. Turns out, I am not Hispanic in the slightest. I am a white
0: kid from Seattle who has an Italian name. It's not, everyone thinks it's Hispanic in California, but it's
1: not. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, being, being Cuban from Miami, uh, yeah, that, that would have been a very, very easy assumption for me, but, um, still looking forward to doing the, 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 the call nonetheless.
0: <laughs> I'm very excited. You've stooped to doing a podcast with a random white guy. Thank you. Yeah.
1: A little disappointing, but, uh, we'll make it work.
0: <laughs> well, okay. Well, since you brought it up, are you indeed defecting from Cuba for religious freedom like Serrano?
1: I uh, so Pedro Serrano, uh, you know, when you first invited me to do this uh, on this particular film, Art, I got to tell you, this movie was near and dear to my heart. Growing up playing uh, high school, college baseball, um, and un, uh, ironically, having a kind of career trajectory in baseball that was kind of similar to a poor man's Pedro Serrano. Like, dude, I could literally hit a fastball, like you could not throw a fastball by me when I played baseball. I could hit 95. I could hit like velo. I had, I had very, very good bat speed, but literally for me, curveball, bat afraid. Like I just – I had many at-bats in college where I saw nine consecutive sliders and just went back to the dugout and was not very happy. So Pedro Serrano as a Cuban uh, crusher who uh, has some power but can't hit breaking stuff was always, uh, was always a very near character for me.
0: <laughs> it's going to be fun to talk to you because you and I have – very uh, distinct baseball backgrounds. I don't think people know that. Now kind of explain to people, you said you played in college, which I actually wasn't aware of. you were you were a pretty big shot at one time, right?
1: I was okay. I mean I was a uh, I was an okay college baseball player. I played four years uh, both at Lane University, which is a very strong uh, NCAA Division two uh, program in South Florida at a Boca Raton. and then I finished up at a uh, small division one. Uh, the University of Tennessee Martin go Skyhawks uh an ohio valley conference school um and yeah i was able to play four years of college ball i loved it college uh, baseball was always my first love my first passion i ended up uh coaching baseball for uh, several years after my playing career which i really really loved and uh yeah that's that's kind of what uh that's what i was actually when i went on survivor i was just i was a high school baseball coach believe it or not and uh that's kind of always been my my first and uh you know foremost thing i love in the world other than my family
0: yeah, okay, and let's talk about there's another big elephant in the room, which we didn't mention. You are related to a famous baseball player.
1: Yes, that's right. My uh, my uncle, Orestes uh, we shared the last name, uh, was an original Florida Marlin back when they were the Florida Marlins in 93. Uh, led the team in home runs and RBIs that season. Um, currently, he's a broadcaster for the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, he's done some work on ESPN, Baseball Tonight, Little League World Series, much of... Bunch of cool stuff. He's always been a big uh, mentor for me. Um, funny enough, actually, when uh, Survivor was doing its uh, its rounds of, uh, you know, every now and then they'll reach out to you and connect to you on certain things. They, they were doing like a, a testing for blood versus water season two and asked me if I had any interesting relatives. He was actually my first pick uh, was him because he's a big, colorful dude um, who's like a giant six foot four version of me, but like way more outlandish. So, um, yeah, that's my uncle. And uh, he's a really cool dude.
0: Yeah. So you have legit baseball pedigree. So, yeah, I just want to point that out. Now, now, Albert and I may nerd out a little in baseball. This this episode may be a little inside baseball for people. And I'm going to try not to do that because I know people know that I'm this huge dork and I like like movies and stuff. But my entire life was baseball until I was about 18 or 19 years old. And it's like not quite to the extent that you were. I didn't play in college. But like as a kid growing up, I was the best hitter in my area in Seattle, in the Seattle area. And it's only because I used to go out in front of my house, and I'd play this game where I'd take a wiffle bat, those, you know, those, those yellow plastic wiffle bats, and I would just throw up tennis balls and try to hit them as fucking far as I could. That's all I ever did. And I developed this wrist speed and wrist strength. So, like, even though I wasn't the biggest kid in the world, I could hit the ball farther than anybody. So, like, from ages 12, 13, 14, 15, like, all of it, my coach would just say, Mario, I want you on my team, tell me which players you want on your team and that'll be my team. I could pick my own teammates. And so like I, I went through this era where I was like this big, the biggest name in my area of baseball. And it was this huge thing. Like you said, everyone is the biggest fish in a small pond at some point. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. that That's definitely true. And I think that, uh, Um, Growing up, where baseball, like, I I feel like kids don't do that much more. Like, we just described, you're like, I would take a tennis ball and hit it with one of those yellow bats. Like, kids aren't out there doing that as much. And Mm -hmm. I think we're losing that as a society. Like, it used to be like, that's what you did. Like, I remember growing up, and my grandfather, I I, I would just take, like, this, like, one of those, like, um, not fully rubber, but not fully hardened baseballs and just throw it to a wall back to myself. Like, 500 times, and I would just practice catching ground balls. I would throw like different pitches, and I like kind of built my arm strength like that. I think there's a story about Billy Wagner, um, who's you know infamously was a right handed pitcher originally in his youth, broke his arm, and then started throwing lefty. And the way he did that was throwing a ball into a wall repeatedly, and he just like did it so many times that all of a sudden he became a left-handed thrower so um yeah man, that's that that was like a lot of like baseball grinders that's their story they just they just became obsessed with it and just started doing repetition 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 you know yeah yeah and i was never the biggest
0: kid the strongest kid i'm just gonna average size kid but i had these really quick wrists and i would do the same thing like you said i just took take wiffle balls we used to have pickle balls i don't know if you have pickle balls in florida but it's like an indoor tennis ball i just pitch pickle balls against my garage like and i tried to do 200 pitches a day for like 10 years And so I developed a pretty good arm. So I was really good in baseball up until exactly like you said, when the pitchers started throwing sliders. So around 16, 17, or 18, I realized I'm a good hitter, but I'm scared of the ball, and I have no interest in adjusting to a slider. So I kind of retired around 17, 18. That's when I kind of peaked out. But I know exactly what you're talking about. Like these kids grind it out. They love baseball. This is all I did in my lifetime. And then eventually you get to a point the players are better than you. You have to retire. But you and I – both grew up in that era where Major League was a big movie when we were playing, I believe.
1: Oh, it was fantastic. And especially for me, like, um, <clears throat> you know, the, getting the opportunity to play a little bit of college and stuff in high school. Like, that, that was just like the movie we'd watch. Like, when we traveled, I, I would watch it with my buddies on my team. Like, it's so quotable. It's so – the characters are so, like – Um, you know, a lot of sports movies kind of get a little corny with the way they make characters, they create characters like these characters were not just like cool baseball players. They just like, they almost would have worked in almost any like vehicle. If you think about it, right? Like they have like, they all have their own, um, eccentricness and they all have their own, um, like kind of like appeal. So it's just, it's just so classic. And it's, it's funny because a lot of people don't mention it, um, in terms of, best sports movie or best baseball movie i always i always just loved it but i think i think you're right i think it like deserves to be in the conversation for best baseball movie maybe even best sports movie
0: <laughs> yeah i'm funny you you say that because going into this podcast albert had told me your favorite baseball movie
1: is what bull Durham i'm a big bull Durham guy yeah bull Durham is like from a purist standpoint, my favorite, just because it's a little bit darker and I always kind of like um, have associated myself a little bit with with uh, Kevin Costner's character, a little bit with the Crash Davis. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, those Bull Durham's up there with for me is number one. But I, Major League actually Major League kind of holds a candle to it. It's, it's a different kind of vibe. It's a different feel. But it's I, it, I think it's more quotable and I think it's a more it's an easier rewatch in a way, really. Yeah,
0: and that's kind of what I was going to say. Like, I love Bull Durham. Bull Durham is a great baseball movie. But the problem I have with Bull Durham, why I don't think it's the greatest of them all, is because it's not very accessible to non-baseball people. And I would specifically bring up my wife, who says, I don't like that movie. I don't really get it. It's a weird universe. I don't know that universe. Like, Major League is someone that, in a movie that anybody could get into and enjoy. And, like, non-baseball junkies might have a problem with Bull Durham. That's really my argument.
1: Right. That's a good point. That's actually a very good point. I think uh, I think my buddy and I, I remember like my best friend and I showing we we're dating uh, a couple of friends at the time. And we we're so excited to show them Bull Durham being like, this is our favorite baseball movie. It's amazing. And these were like, you know, late 20s, early 30 year old girls. And they just like looked glazed over watching it. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is this movie is doing absolutely zero for them. And, and it does have like a like a, you know, kind of a real love story with Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins, but, um, yeah, you're right. I think it's like Bull Durham almost might be too much of like a baseball insider movie in a way, whereas major league can just, you don't really, have, like I said, major league, the characters so good. Like, I don't think you even really need to enjoy baseball to enjoy the movie. It's that fun.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And that, that's my argument. And like I said, like you said, major league rarely comes up in the subject of best sports movies, let alone best baseball movies, which i'm always shocked because to me it's really not even close like i love bull durham for what it is the natural <laughs> I, I love telling this story because i was a home run hitter like i said i always wanted to hit the big home run in, in little league every single game i ever played in you know uh, senior league pony stuff like that i would watch the last 15 minutes of the natural right before the game because that was my psych up m- movie so i know yeah i know the roy hobbs scene inside and out but that movie itself is kind of slow. That's not one I recommend to everybody unless they really, really love
1: old-timey baseball. It's very old-timey. It's actually I, – uh, I, I very slow is a really good way to categorize it. And uh, it's funny. Actually, one of my, my favorite memories from high school baseball was we played um, – on one of our trips, we went to um, – shoot, I think this was – it might have been in Texas, but um, anyway, we played one of these like tournaments where uh, you know a bunch of teams from different states went, and I never forget one of the best teams in that tournament was like uh, one of the co-hosts, and they just had like this like storied high school team and every time they hit a home run they would play that the, the music from the natural the like the whole thing and they we, we were watching them play one team and they just kept hitting home runs and it's every now and then they just kept playing every, every fucking home run it was just da-da, and it's just like that got like burned in my head that that theme song you know so you have a grudge
0: against the natural to this day
1: a little bit it was a little bit annoying to watch them there was almost like they were they were they were shitting on that poor other team man like there was you know they just kept rubbing in their nose like we get it it's 11 to 1 like okay (laughs) okay so i mean this is a big
0: endless discussion what's the best baseball movie of all time what's the best sports movie of all time i personally would say major league i would listen to arguments if you wanted to say field of dreams or hoosiers or some other sports movie but the, the the thing i wanted to get into here is not only is this a good movie but this is why i really wanted to do this on the podcast i, I don't know if you'll be able to relate, to relate to this you're a little younger than me you may, did you see major league in the theater
1: i did not see it in the theater no i it was a uh, I, I think i saw it on i think it was a vhs for sure it was a physical black cassette tape okay how how old are you i'm 47 you're a little younger than me i'm 36 but i'm also a little bit more like i i i enjoy things that were before my time like forever seinfeld was my favorite show and i I mean seinfeld was i mean i was between six and uh let me see i think seinfeld last year was 98 which i was 13 mm-hmm. so and that was like forever my favorite show so um i've always been a little bit like kind of older with my tastes but um yeah so I'm, I'm 36 okay so you
0: you probably wouldn't be able to relate to what i'm about to say here but this is for everybody who wonders why i love major league so much so This movie came out in 1989 when I'm 15 years old, and that is absolutely my peak as a player. I really kind of tailed off around 17, 18 when the other kids got bigger and threw harder. But at 15, I'm thinking, I'm really good at baseball. I might want to play in the pros. So this movie comes out, which is to me like the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I saw it in the theater at 15. And I shit you not. This is the greatest movie to ever see in a theater with a packed crowd. I mean, have you ever had that experience, Albert?
1: I I kind of. I haven't. It hasn't happened in a while, but – as i'm like picturing what you're describing it makes sense like the excitement the scenes it's almost like you're at a sports game right like people's like are rooting for like the big moments and i, I can just hear that like that music when they're, when they're doing like the the winning montage and they're showing all like the newspaper clips like yeah that that actually makes sense <laughs> i i can't remember it recently for me but I, I i can picture clearly what you're describing okay well that
0: is why i definitely want to get across to all my listeners if they ever release major league again give it like a limited engagement and you get to go see it in a theater with a bunch of baseball people, I don't know if I have ever seen a movie that will give you more goosebumps and chills in a theater. It is like freaking unbelievable. There's nothing like it, and I to this day I still remember that night. My mom took me. I Albert, I was not allowed to see R-rated movies. That was a big thing in, in on staff picks. I was treated like veal. <laughs> This is, a, this, is a, this is a silly question. Is Major League R-rated? It is R-rated, and that's a big deal because it was the first R-rated movie my parents would let me see in the theater. My mom specifically took me. So it was like a big rite of
1: passage. Wow. I, I didn't even process it as, a, as an R-rated film, but that, that makes sense. It's a big step. You remember your first one, Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. The, the one scene in particular where uh, Dorn and Vaughn are fighting in the locker room after Dorn gives him the fake red tag in his locker. Yeah. Listen to that scene. You'll understand why it's R. Rookie fuckwad can't take a fucking joke. It's all F-words. I yeah, remember yeah. Yeah, the first time I had it on VHS at home, and my dad walked in. He's like, never play that
1: movie in this house again. Yeah, not, nice catch. Don't ever fucking do it again. Little Lou Brown, yeah.
0: Yeah, so again, that but that's the point. If you ever have a chance to see this movie, this is like one of the five movies I could name in the world. You have to see it at least once in the theater. This isn't specifically for you, just for everybody. And I'm like... Avatar is up there. You have to see that on a big screen IMAX. You have to see Rocky Two. That's another one I love. I would love to see that in the theater with a the crowd. But Major League is really the big one. All right. So let's talk about a little more of the history of this movie. So do, do you know how this movie came about? I was kind of reading some trivia about it before we, uh, I, I got on the podcast here. I don't. I don't. I know, I
1: know uh, some snippets. You're probably, you're probably a little bit more well-versed. Hit me. What do you got? Okay. So
0: it's written by a guy named David Ward who is a longtime Hollywood screenwriter, a Cleveland Indians diehard fan. And I love this. He decided, I want to see the Indians win something in my lifetime, so I better write a movie where they do because I'll never see it in person.
1: As a fan of the Atlanta Braves, who's been a, like a, a, a franchise who's uh, you know paid the toll of, uh, of of just misery over the years, I, I can completely relate with that. That makes a lot of sense actually. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's the thing. And again, I'm from Seattle. I'm a Seattle Mariners fan, Ooh. who
1: are even less relevant than the Cleveland Indians. Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. So he wrote this movie. He was shopping it around Hollywood for like. 15 years from 1982 to 87 he could never get anybody to bite on it and eventually he did and then eventually came out it was a huge hit again any kid i knew would have watched it would have loved it but then what i love about this movie is that history repeated itself because all of a sudden the cleveland indians became the best team in baseball for a couple years right after this movie do you remember that
1: I mean, that, that, those Indian teams, people forget from the, from the early to mid nineties, those were powerhouse teams. And I mean, I know there's a like separation from 89 to like, you know, 94, 95, but yeah, the Indians team and, and really when they moved from that stadium, when they w- moved into Jacobs Field, they became like, I remember them being like really, really good, uh, with those just insane lineups that they had. Jim Tome, Ma- young Manny Ramirez, young, um, you know, Carlos still in his prime, just, just so many good hitters. Um, but yeah, that was the Indians like, it's funny because that's when I kind of watched it was I was about maybe, you know, 10, 95. The Indians were already starting to be good, but Mm -hmm. the movie still made sense as like them being the lovable losers of the 80s.
0: (laughs) I had never even thought about that, that someone would be watching this movie when the Indians are already good. So it loses some of the poignancy because that's the whole point of this movie, that Cleveland really was the most hapless team in baseball.
1: Yeah. Well, I think they rebranded hard, though. When they changed stadiums, they changed uniforms. They went away from that, like – you know, the, the thick striped uh, logo on the side of the uni, like they, they kind of just rebranded themselves and it worked for them, you know, and, and I think it's like it's it's like a great scene at the very beginning of the movie when like he's like, and here come the Indians that, and and listen to the roar of the crowd. And there's like 24 people in the in the stands. Right. It's like uh, that that's like that. I, I could still I remember as a kid being like, oh, that's what they were before they like moved to the stadium and did this like <laughs> stadiums are important. No wonder these teams want to get them. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's funny because I have a couple friends who grew up in Cleveland. I've never really been there much myself, but I have a couple friends who grew up being Cleveland uh, sports fans, and I feel so bad for those guys. That has got to be the worst city to have ever grown up and be a sports fan.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean – Cleveland, Cleveland is, is definitely on that, on the Mount Rushmore of places where just things don't work out for them sports wise. Just, I mean, it's, it's, it was, it's, it's a long drawn. I mean, how long have the Browns been a joke? The poor Indians like got so close against the Cubs. I mean, the Cavaliers, they, it's just, you know, they had, they had a good run with when LeBron came back. But when they, when LeBron left, I feel like that was like the the pinnacle of their dejectedness. They're just like burning his, like they, I feel like they started the whole burning the jerseys thing in Cleveland when like LeBron James left. Like that's how bad, that's how mad they were. They're like, let's burn their uniform. Let's burn their laundry. Um, that's how bad it was. But yeah, but it's, it's, it's a tough place. Have you ever seen the
0: uh, 30 for 30 documentary called Believe Land about Cleveland's sports fans? I, <laughs> I saw bits and pieces. I don't think I saw the whole thing. Okay, that's one I watched. I didn't really realize the uh, totality of how depressing it would be to grow up in Cleveland. Because basically, I think the gist of the movie is nobody ever leaves Cleveland. They just stay there, and no one ever moves there. So, like, they, you have the same fan base there from, like, 1940 to the present, and nobody ever, nothing ever happened. So, like, I watched that movie, and I'm like, even as a Seattle sports
1: fan, I just want to go give a Cleveland fan a hug. I feel ter- ter- terrible for those people. You know it's bad when a, when a when a Mariner's fan is like, "Oh, I feel bad for these guys, so I got to give them a hug. Well, that's the thing like in
0: Seattle when the team sucks, we can just go outside because it's beautiful. like Cleveland, they don't have that option.
1: yeah <laughs> that's true They're like shit it's it's thirty eight and snowing again. This is horrific.
0: yeah, okay, but so anyway, that's for my listeners. that's the big picture. Cleveland really was the hub of being the most depressing sports city ever. so that's the history behind this movie. It was a big deal. And then after this movie came out, which was a big hit, everyone loved the Cleveland Indians. There was this, they were the trendy team. Do you remember uh, Alex Cole? I love talking about him. Do you remember him? Alex Cole? No, no. Remind me. <laughs> Alex Cole was this center fielder for, in Cleveland's minor league system. And I think he stole, like, 40 bases or hit, like, 340 in one of those late 80s years. And, like, all of a sudden, because this movie was such a big deal, they built their entire team around him and renovated their stadium around their center fielder. And so, like, they wanted to make Willie Mays Hayes. And I, I felt horrible for this guy, Alex Cole, because he wasn't that good. But they, brand, they basically rebranded their entire team around this new Willie
1: Mays Hayes. I thought it was hilarious. That's amazing that a movie would actually influence. Like, that shows you how far we've come. They're like, before analytics, they're like, wow, that was, they're like, we really like Wesley Snipes in that role. Do you, you think you could be him? <laughs> yeah. So, again, this movie was influential in
0: so many ways, uh, including this other one. Now, you probably know this. The use of relief pitchers coming into music, that had never existed before Major League, which I didn't know, I didn't realize that. Stop. Really? I read that somewhere, that when uh, Ricky Vaughn comes into me, to a wild thing in this movie, that was such a big deal, such a big moment. Then Mitch Williams of the Phillies started doing that. He started coming into the same song.
1: Wild Thing Mitch Williams, that makes sense. Wild Thing Mitch Williams, that was his nickname, man. Yeah.
0: So what we have now is
1: all because of Major League. This movie spawned an entire culture in baseball. Wow, that's that's unbelievable. Because now I can't even picture baseball being played without intro songs. Like, as a, I never forget, like as a as a young player growing up, that was like one of the things I looked forward to. Is like, man, I can hopefully make college or professional baseball, so I can have a like a walkout song. I remember one year, like our, our college coach literally. Guys kept changing their songs to the point where he's like, no more songs for the rest of the year. And we were all devastated that he took away the ability to walk out to songs. It was unbelievable. Like that was that's like a really that's really cool fact.
0: Okay, Albert, now I'm going to put you on the spot here. Every baseball player worth his brain has already decided what his theme song would
1: have been if he'd made it to the majors. Do you know what yours would have been? Yeah, um, no, I haven't actually thought about it. Uh, yeah, so Chevelle the Red uh, would be one for sure. Um, I came out to Jimi Hendrix all along the Watchtower, my senior year of college, um, came out to Rage Against the Machine, uh, Gorilla Radio, my freshman year, came out to Stone Temple Pilots, uh, my sophomore year, and then we had that one year, the dark year, where they took, where they took it all away, and um, but yeah, I, I've def yeah to answer your question, yes, definitely thought about it from different positions too. I'm like, if I'm a relief pitcher who throws really hard, I'd come out to this song. <laughs> if I'm a position guy, I'd come out to that song. I think it depends on where you hit in the lineup too. By the way, I don't think you can come out with the same song if you're a three hitter if you're the nine hole. I think you can't. You gotta you gotta like you know build it up a little bit differently. So yes, to answer your question, baseball players are insane and we think about this kind of shit all the time.
0: Oh yeah, I'm just hoping of the rest of you are enjoying this uh, little insight into the way baseball players think because if you grew up in that era this is something you definitely would have thought of and like when i was 13 i spent hours practicing my autograph i just wanted to make sure i had a baseball
1: <laughs> autograph how cocky of you then you really must have had fast hands of your practice you're like yeah this is gonna be worth a lot of money one day
0: <laughs> yeah it didn't pan out the the comedy writer here didn't get too far i didn't even play in college but yeah so uh, okay so uh, i have one more story about theme songs relief pictures coming out the theme songs i'm going to save it for the end of the podcast I really want to get your reaction to this, but remind me to talk about it later. Okay. Okay. So, are you ready to uh, delve into this movie, this uh, Major League beloved classic? Let's do
1: it. Let's take our first. Let's take our first step into the Hall of Fame. Willie Mays' Saints. <laughs> yes. <laughs> got
0: 100 I got a hundred more and nail all these gloves, nail to my wall for all the podcasts I'm gonna do. Oh yeah. Uh- <laughs> oh, speaking. Okay. Speaking of which, this movie opens with the song "Burn on Big River" by uh, Randy Newman. Uh, which uh, it does that uh, does, does remind me one other thing I wanted
1: to mention. This movie has an outstanding soundtrack, and I don't think it ever really gets credit for that. I think a lot of these movies, man, that's kind of like what makes the appeal to it. It's like the, uh, like yeah, the, the soundtrack, and like I'm currently I can't like replay it, but in my head I can hear that, like that that's playing in my head as we're like going through this thing right now. <laughs> it's like so great.
0: Yeah, this is one of the first uh, DVD or CD soundtracks I remember buying back in the early early late 80s. So, yeah, I still have it, I think, to this day. This song has got instrumental songs. It's got some good uh, live-action songs. But this one at the start, Burn On Big River. Like, are you familiar with the significance of that song and kind of his- Cleveland's history?
1: Yeah. Um. The, I'm assuming that's like a little bit with uh, – was it the Cuyahoga River or something like yeah. that? Walk me through it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the river that goes through Cleveland is the Cuyahoga River,
0: for people who don't know. Very famous because at some point in the 50s, 60s, 70s, I don't know exactly, the, the river was so polluted they accidentally caught it on
1: fire. Oh, that's right. Yes, I, I do remember that. I do remember hearing about that.
0: Yeah, so that's Cleveland's reputation, that the city that is so crappy they accidentally set their river on fire. And the, the other nickname for Cleveland is the, is the mistake by the lake. Mistake
1: by the lake. That's, that's a very <laughs> – that's always bad when they go, this is the mistake by the lake. That's always – architect. No, nobody's going to win a prize in architecture for that. <laughs>
0: yeah, so that's the opening to this movie, and it's very poignant if you know the history of Cleveland because the song is called Burn On Big River. And it's just – the song is taking a dig at the fact that Cleveland once set their own river on fire. So I just wanted to point that out
1: how apropos right let's go
0: (laughs) and we get the whole montage here right we learn the whole history of uh cleveland's losing streak over the years Do, do you remember the specifics they uh i think they say something like uh so this movie's in 1989 cleveland has not won a championship since 1948 it's been 41 years they've gone 34 years in a row with no playoffs and this is all legit this is all what those real stats were at the time this this was not a good baseball team
1: they actually still—they uh, still haven't won a World Series, which is pretty remarkable. Now, you know, what, what is this? Thirty-some odd years later, right? Thirty-two odd years later. I did not realize that. I didn't. They still haven't won a World Series.
0: Yeah, they haven't. Think about it. <laughs> wow. Well, okay. See, I'm a little biased because my team is obviously Seattle. In 1995, Seattle had our amazing run with Griffey and Randy Johnson and everything, and we beat the Yankees and it was awesome. And then we got buzz sawed by the Cleveland Indians yep they did yeah so i just assume cleveland won that world series because they were so good i always forget they didn't win that world series
1: 95 world series was the atlanta braves my good man we beat the cleveland indians that was actually uh that was the last time we sold the i'm a diehard atlanta braves fan that was last time we celebrated um and then you had the big you had the big world series in um i think that was 15 with the cubs or maybe that was 16 actually cubs and uh Cubs and Indians, where they both are facing, you know, destiny. And uh, the Cubs at Jamal, even though the Cubs had... In their defense, the Cubs had been waiting a little bit longer than Cleveland. But, uh, yeah, the Indians uh, will will be... Or now now the Guardians, right? That's another part about this movie, too, by the way. The Indians don't exist anymore. Now it's the Cleveland Guardians. But I'm sure we'll cover that a little later. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up
0: because, like I said, this movie kind of gets forgotten a little bit in baseball lore. And I'm worried it's going to get forgotten even more now because, obviously, there's a... uh, awful lot of shots in this movie of grinning chief wahoo on that hat (laughs) yeah oh yeah (laughs) yeah i don't know if this movie is going to age all that well because of that i'm not sure it will be allowed to exist wait a second are you trying to tell me you think major leagues going to get canceled (laughs) it's entirely i mean they had a strike in 94 they've already shut down baseball once they may cancel this movie i don't know are you trying to tell me jesus christ can't hit a curveball
1: (laughs) i'm sorry i can't help myself yeah (laughs) (laughs) all
0: right so we'll, we'll get back to that yeah but uh that is an interesting point do you you think that's going to hurt the popularity of this movie overall now that cleveland indians are no more
1: i mean i I really hope not i think i hope it's like remains like a cool relic like we look back upon it and think it's like um it goes from like a team a movie about a current sports team to a movie about like a team that existed i hope it doesn't uh, i I hate any i mean i think you and i have privately spoken about getting offended and the pc culture and not to get not to go on a soapbox here but I think things like this that are, I mean, major league, think about it. It's a, it's a great comedy film, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a a masterclass in how to make a fun, um, you know, irreverent sports film. So I really hope it doesn't get caught up by all this PC nonsense of people getting offended. I mean, nobody, they, they, they were just, they were just doing, they were just doing what they thought was funny at the time. And it was funny at the time. And if anything, Major League Two is maybe a little bit more offensive than <laughs> the original Major League when they got, like, the Taka Tanaka and all that kind of stuff. But uh, he's more of a stereotype than anybody else. But I, I don't know. I, 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 hope, I sure hope not, Mara. I hope, I, hope uh, I hope they don't come out with, a pitch, with the pitchforks against our film.
0: Well, it's funny because you said it's a very, you know, light, lively, whimsical comedy. But I'd even go further than that and say this movie, like, legitimately inspires people. And like I would think I would feel it's so horrible if a movie that is so beloved and inspires so many people
1: like gets it's you know tarred and pitchforked. I I think that's terrible. Well, you know what's funny, man, it's like I think the idea has been as much as it wasn't like considered, you know, cinematic greatness in a way, the concept or the you know, the the you know, the formula's been repeated many times, right? Like how many times since then have we seen like a sports underdog movie. It's like, this is like the, the original, like amazing sports underdog movie. Every character in the is an underdog. Luke Brown works at a tire shop. Like every player was like a discard, you know, and they all like turn out to be good. And we've seen that uh, over and over and over in other movies, you know, there's the rookie and there's the, you know, all these other um, little baseball movies. Like what's the Keanu Reeves one. It's escaping me now, but it's like the same concept. Uh, it's like all these different movies have that, have those same themes and they all kind of have to pay homage to Major League is like the OG, I think, you know. Yeah. I had to think about that. The Keanu Reeves movie is uh, Hardball. Hardball, yeah. Hardball, Hardball, <laughs> that's what it was, Hardball. It just, as, as you were saying, Hardball, yeah. All those other, like, it, we've seen it so many times, like the Underdog, Underdog, Underdog story, and it's, it's, it's Major League was the, that's the mecca of that, I think. It's like the original, it's like the original one. Yeah, well, uh, maybe uh,
0: worst case scenario, George Lucas can come in here and CGI the Guardian's logo on the hat all throughout the
1: movie. <laughs> <laughs> Guardian, yeah, that'd be a hell of a remake right there remake it with the guardians
0: (laughs) okay so the plot of this movie is actually very simple and i was actually kind of surprised when i watched it again this morning how quickly this movie gets into the action did you notice that like within three
1: minutes we're already into the plot of the movie oh i love that i actually love that like right out of the gate they're like it's spring training let's it actually moves at a really fast pace they like if you notice it's it's a quick film i want to say it's like maybe an hour 27, something like that. I'm just off the top of my head there. I'm not, I'm not looking at anything, but I feel like they, 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 they kind of edited it to, to work at that quick pace. Like it seemed like stylistically, whether whatever, maybe the studio, something, but they just wanted it to go quickly. And it does feel like it hits the ground running. Yeah, absolutely. There's no
0: wasted momentum in this movie. We ran into the action within like five minutes where it's spring training. I think, I think I did time. And it. it's like an hour 33 movie overall but like almost 30 minutes is the final game wow i didn't realize that the final game is that long that's awesome yeah if you pay attention to the pacing of the movie they play their first game and they lose and then all of a sudden uh, the owner's like oh we're 16 and 24 so like we we yada yada over like 30 games yeah <laughs> and then all of a sudden they're like oh they're getting better now they're 60 and 60 so we really jump huge parts of the season i always thought that was funny the more i looked for it
1: yeah that's right i mean it's it's hard to make a movie about 162 game season including spring training and a, and a one game playoff and not do it that quickly yeah okay so let's talk about
0: the plot of this movie because this is very important because like this is a comedy it's a funny movie but the reason i like it so much is that almost everything that happens in this movie could happen in real life and the whole plot of the movie <laughs> We're going to get in a real sensitive area here, as me as a Seattle sports fan, because it ties into my history as well. But uh, So the plot of the movie is what? That uh, we have a new owner of the Indians, her husband died, she's
1: a showgirl, and she doesn't like the team being in Cleveland, right? Right, which is interesting because it actually does foreshadow what really happens, which is Miami, <clears throat> she wants to move the team to Miami, And Miami gets a major league franchise four years after this movie comes out. It's pretty kind of wild. You know, 93, the Marlins come into their inception. But, yeah, it actually is a pretty plausible outlook. They're like, we're in Cleveland. We suck. It sucks here. She's like, they promised me a mansion in Boca Raton. And, like, I want to go to Miami. Like, this is amazing. And it's like, okay, I I can actually see that as a plausible, like, situation.
0: Yeah, not only is it plausible, Albert, this is the reality for life as a Seattle Mariners fan in the late 80s. Because they would hold this over our head every year. Because people may not know, if you don't know the history of baseball, there was no team in Florida in 1989, correct? No, no, no. The Marlins started in 93. 93 uh, was the inception of the Marlins and the Rockies. So every team that was struggling in baseball through the 80s would get this threat hanging over their head. Either increase attendance, get a new stadium, get better, or we're going to move to Florida. And this happened to Seattle at least three or four different times during my childhood.
1: Yeah, your '95 your season, or your '95 season was pretty, uh, a pretty breakout for you guys. But yeah, those some of those runs, those late '80s runs for you guys, kind of saved your franchise in a way, right? Early '90s runs kind of saved the franchise. They did.
0: They saved the Mariners from Florida, from this exact scenario in this movie. So when I see the scenario in the movie, this is not some outlandish plot just for a movie. This is literally how baseball worked at the time. Florida was sitting there with open arms, and they had all those spring training teams and all those fans. And, like, you grew up in Florida.
1: People love baseball in Florida, right? they do yeah and it's uh the weather is fantastic even the name makes sense the miami mariners think about that that would have <laughs> been amazing but <laughs> i, I can actually see it we're right by the water the mariners like it was it was a natural tie in there but yeah you guys uh, i'm glad i'm glad i'm glad the pacific northwest kept the franchise because the, the mariners are um i think a really cool and awesome part of baseball history so
0: yeah we're the only team up there in the northwest so we have to represent it. but yeah that was so that's the thing the plot of this movie is very realistic that owners do have this clause it's called an attendance clause and they sign a lease with the city and if they don't get enough uh, attendance don't get enough support they are free to shop the services anywhere they want in the country and all that money was sitting in florida so that's the plot of this movie this showgirl owner rachel phelps owns the cleveland indians doesn't want to live in cleveland wants to move to to florida and the goal is what is her goal albert how is how is she going
1: to plan to do that Um, well, before I answer that question, it actually just, it's so funny because I've seen this movie uh, uh, dozens of times and it just hit me because I always thought about how do they have, you know, you know, towards the end when they do like the win per piece of article of clothing off of like the, the cardboard cutout of her in my head, I was like, how do they have that cardboard cutout? But I never tied that in together. It's actually pretty genius. She's a show. She was a former showgirl. They do mention that at the beginning of the movie. So that's, that's how they had that actual picture to like use as like motivation against her. But, um, anyway, to answer your question, um her idea was which is pretty brilliant she's like i'm gonna try to create the worst roster imaginable to try to drive attendance down so we suck so badly that the team not only did, not only did like major league baseball agree to like let them move but like i'm sure she's trying to punish her own fan base to the point where they just said fuck it like we, we give up on these guys they're horrific like get them out of here it's actually a pretty diabol- di- diabolically genius scheme it's
0: diabolical and i will let a, let loose a little dark secret on you albert albert I have actually seen this happen. It has happened to my city before. Oh, is that what the Supersonics did? That's what happened with the Seattle Supersonics. The owner came in, Clay Bennett, from Oklahoma City. He basically bled the team dry. He drove the attendance down. He traded away all our good players. He would not put a good product on the floor. The fans said, fuck it, this sucks, and he yanked them to Oklahoma City. So I have seen this play out personally.
1: That's that's pretty remarkable. I wonder if that's kind of what happened with Montreal, the Expos. Because I remember at the end of the Expos' run, uh, when they became the Washington Nationals and left Montreal, and, and uh, in the late nineties, early two thousands, Major League Baseball was, was like running the organization. Like Major League Baseball was like the owner of the Nationals mm-hmm. in its in its inception. So that's interesting. Maybe maybe they're like, hey, this is like the writer of this movie was like onto something <laughs> that's like really like an actual thing you can do. Yeah. So I, I have some personal
0: connections to this movie that i'm not too thrilled with but uh, although i will say just uh, personal as a personal uh anecdote there's nothing a sports fan hates more than when their team goes to another city like you will never find a person in seattle who will even acknowledge that oklahoma city is a basketball team ever
1: ever ever yeah ever. Are you, i was about to ask you that are you guys do you guys even like you don't have any support for them right it's not like they're you don't look at that you're not an okc thunder fan
0: i have not watched a basketball game since the sonics left i love that and you shouldn't you really shouldn't yeah. But I know people in Cleveland. I have a friend from Cleveland, Steve, who his team was moved to Baltimore at one point. I forget the, the details, right? Cleveland went to Baltimore. Yeah. OK. And he's the same way. He's like, I fucking hate that city. I will never set foot in that city. So yeah, the Bal- Baltimore courts became the Baltimore Ravens.
1: Right. Or I thought that I think something like that. But yeah.
0: I don't know, but there's something. I may have to cut this out. I kind of forget the details, but he's from Cleveland. His team went somewhere, and he's still to this day fucking pissed. So, yeah, that's the deal. So this is a very real threat. Rachel Phelps easily could have pulled this off, and Cleveland would have lost a team. And that's the whole plot of this movie, that she's going to throw together the worst possible team imaginable, and somehow, <laughs> despite all odds, they're going to win. So that's it's the the ultimate underdog story.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a
0: beautiful thing how they set this thing up. And, and again, it's not over-the-top comedic. Like, in a lesser movie, this would be a really silly movie. But it's not really a silly movie.
1: It's, it's, it's a, it's actually a serious movie with, with like silly characters. I think like the, the themes are pretty serious, but like not serious, but the themes aren't super silly. They're like, Hey, well, like we want to go, it's, it's actually more motiv- like what you said. It gets you a little bit excited and gets you like pumped up a little bit, but um no, no, it's like, they're facing some real shit. Like these guys are playing for their livelihoods. Like even the scenes early on when you, like you mentioned, when they're putting the red tags in their locker and like, you could sense some of these, cause you don't know what's going to happen. So you could sense some of these guys are like fearing for their lives like jake taylor's like you just regardless of what happens like don't celebrate too much like some of these people don't you know they died in there like it's it's you can feel a little bit of the pressure early on yeah okay and we'll talk about the players
0: now because that's one thing i wanted to get into especially jake taylor but let's save him for last okay i will uh let you introduce some of the new players that are being thrown onto the roster that perhaps
1: would not be on a normal baseball team okay so um first guy i'd like to uh get into is um, one, of the, one of the most notable guys, one of the biggest stars on the team, coming from a league you're not, you're not very familiar with, which is the California Penal League. And that is our right-handed flamethrower, Mr. Wild Thing, Rick Vaughn. Yeah, okay, Rick Vaughn is an interesting one. So this is Charlie Sheen in one
0: of his most famous movies. Uh, now, Charlie Sheen is interesting because uh, it, I've, read, I've a lot of, read a lot of background materials on this movie, and all the guys who are in this movie could actually play baseball pretty well. Like they were very competitive with each other. But of the athletes, Charlie
1: Sheen was like a legitimate pitcher, wasn't he? He was. And, I, you know, it's funny when I when I used to watch the movie and I'd watch his like, you know, because I think as a baseball guy, it's very that's one of the first things we look for in sports movies. Right. You look and see like who looks like a baseball player like Kevin Costner famously, you know, had a lot of baseball movies. And he looked the part when he played Crash Davis as a switch hitting you know catcher. He looked the part when he was, uh, you know, uh, Billy Chaplin and for love of the game. Um, he, you know, certain guys looked the part and, um, I, I, and I was never sure about Charlie Sheen. I was like, okay, he looks like he could throw a little bit, but I think if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, Mario, like he was a decent high school athlete, like shortstop and pitched a little bit. Right. Yeah. He was a star pitcher in high school. He had a college scholarship to pitch.
0: He could re- uh, reportedly reach 85 miles an hour in real life. That's pretty That's pretty, uh, That's pretty. pretty legitimate for a guy in that, you know, for a high school guy. Yeah, I've never personally seen a guy, I mean, face the guy throwing 85. That's, that's legit. You're, you're talking college-level velocity there. And then not only that, I heard that he went on steroids for this movie. So, like, he could really bring it in some of those
1: pitching scenes. He looks like he's actually pitching. That's, that's surprise. I mean, that's, I, I don't even actually, I don't want to say surprise because like a lot of the action stars of the 80s did some weird stuff like that. Like, but, uh, and after the fact, and actually now, now that if we think about who Charlie Sheen became, like yeah. maybe, maybe steroids aren't that surprising <laughs> for him to use to be wild thing Rick Vaughn, but what a great character. What a great, like, um, just, you know, the whole, the whole shtick of, you know, him just showing up to the field with like cutting the sleeves off his uniform. Like one of, that's actually the, one of my favorite things about this movie is how quotable it is. Mm -hmm. And it's like quotable in non baseball settings. Like dude, buddies of mine, like we literally quote, uh, major league in like everyday life all the time probably one of my favorite quotes is that one. it's like we wore caps and sleeves at this level and he's like Vaughn they tell us you're a pitcher not much of a dresser like <laughs> like that whole thing of him like he just shows up and like cuts the sleeves off his uniform and uh he's on the he's on he's on the payphone talking about when spring training is and there he's like he's like yeah we report in uh, April he's like or March he's like uh yeah I don't know if we can make it in March and the camera slowly pans back and shows you like he's in jail <laughs> it's, it's fucking amazing actually
0: I'm glad you said that that the some of the lesser quotable lines are the funniest ones in this. there's one that always makes me laugh and i don't know why it shouldn't it's when they're in the fancy restaurant later jake takes them all to the fancy restaurant to introduce them to higher culture yep and and ricky vaughn is wearing like a leather jacket with no sleeves and a tie he looks ridiculous he looks
1: amazing yeah
0: yeah. and he says i feel like a banker in this thing
1: Unreal. Willie Mays Hayes is reading the menu upside down. And he's just like, don't worry, don't worry, I'll order. It's it's, all those little like those small little lines are some of my favorite. (laughs) It's the greatest. Okay, so, yeah, Ricky Vaughn is this
0: pitcher with a big arm. He's got an attitude. He's in jail for boosting a car. He's just trouble, but he can throw very hard. Now, Albert and I would be the first to tell you if a guy can throw like 96 miles an hour, which is kind of ostensibly what Ricky Vaughn does they can overlook a lot of sins. They will try to teach him control if you have that kind of, of of velocity because you know, prior to, you know, the 2000s and velocity camp and speed camp and stuff,
1: 96 was a really considered a power arm. Oh yeah, I mean, I think uh that's probably gets glossed over a little bit this like the, you know, I I'm still pretty big on following baseball and stuff, and they, they show how the major league average fastball has climbed from what used to be, like, 92, 93 to 94 to, like, you know, just numbers that are ridiculous, but, dude, in 1989, a guy who just comes out there kind of, like, whatever, in a spring training workout, just throwing 96, 97, that's, that's like a, you know, that, that's like a franchise changing type arm, especially in that era. Like, back then, if you had a guy through 95, that guy was a, that guy was like a power, power pitcher, so... Yeah, you see, you see Rick Vaughn, and, and, like, he has all this appeal as, like, this, like, guy who throws the shit out of a baseball but will knock off the dummy's head when he's trying to pitch in a bullpen session, you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, no, and the one thing I want to bring up is that this is another thing that's really been lost to time is that Nolan Ryan, you know, the all-time great strikeout king, the fastest pitcher in baseball history, I believe in 1989 he still held the record with a pitch at 100.9 miles an hour which was not that much faster than Ricky Vaughn. In fact, if you watch that's a kind of a big moment in the movie, the last pitch where Ricky Vaughn strikes out Clue Haywood, he throws 101 miles an hour, the last pitch of the game. That, I believe, would have broken the record for Major League Velocity at the time.
1: Really? I, I, never, I guess I never quantified it like that. Yeah, there weren't guys throwing 100 at that time period. But What a great scene where he's just like, Jake Taylor's talking to him, he's like, uh... I don't know. Uh, what do you think? Uh, how do you feel about the old number one here? And you just hear like <laughs> Lou Brown, in the dugouts, like forget about the curveball, Ricky, give him the heater. And he just throws he just literally throws it right by Lou Hayward and they just show you the, the shot of the radar gun. It's just that, re- that really gets you jacked up like that. I, I do agree with you that that was like to be in a theater to see that and to see like get, feel the emotion That actually would have been fucking pretty sick. So we talked about
0: charlie sheen who famously i don't know why you were surprised he took drugs for a role but he took drugs for a role (laughs) right (laughs) but yeah charlie sheen was a legit pitcher like i think in this filming they would move the mound up a couple feet so it would make it look like he threw harder but he could really he could legitimately
1: get it up there makes sense makes sense
0: so let's talk about a relatively a relative newcomer to hollywood who was probably my favorite character in the movie at the time willie mays hayes played by wesley snipes
1: Oh, I love, love Willie Mays Hayes. Yeah. Okay. So who is Willie Mays? Hayes? who is this guy? Well, Willie Mays is interesting. Willie Mays Hayes is an interesting character because, um, in that beautiful like scene when they're showing all the cars showing up to spring training kind of in tandem, it's like you first, you see, first you see, um, <clears throat> Rick, Rick Vaughn or actually first see Jake Taylor. Then you see Rick Vaughn then you see like Willie Mays Hayes shows up in this like, like Volkswagen buggy with like a fake, like Rolls Royce, like emblem on top of it. He's like, Hey guys, what's going on? He's like, tries to like just kind of fake the funk. And basically we find out that he's like, even in this cast of like, just undesirables, he like, wasn't even on the list to come to spring training. He like (laughs) faked his way in and like just shows up. And he's like this speezer amazing talent who, um, thinks he's a really, he, he comes out and says like, I hope you guys are looking forward to the hitting display I'm going to put on, which is hilarious that he says that because he can't hit and uh, just, you know, has this remarkable speed, game changing speed, which we we come to see later in the film. And we see in that scene when he's like, you know, they're they're doing sprints and they're getting time to like what looks like a 60 yard dash. And Willie Mays Hayes just comes out in his pajamas and just smokes everybody.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Willie Mays. He was I would argue he was the takeaway from this movie at the time. There really wasn't, like, you had, like, Ricky Henderson in baseball. You had kind of players like that, Vince Coleman, Tim Raines. But, yeah, this guy was such a big talker, big bragger, said he could do anything, failed at everything he said he could do, which is hilarious. He eventually proves himself later. But I, I just want to bring back the point that Wesley Snipes was relatively unknown. I think he might have been in, like, New Jack City or a couple other movies. But he was not that big a movie star.
1: So this was a huge breakout role for him. There's some big names in this movie that hadn't really, like, I mean, I know Charlie Sheen had done like some stuff before. I think he, I think Wall Street came out before this, but um, yeah, like Wesley Snipes turned out ended up being a huge name in, in Hollywood. It hadn't really done much. Rene Russo was, you know, turned out to be a really big name in Hollywood. Um, you know, a lot of the people in this movie had some some. Um, you know, pretty good careers after the fact. And yeah, Wesley Seitz comes on and just like completely owns the role. Like it's, it's incredible that he doesn't come back in the second film and they kind of changed the actor on that, but don't get me started on that. Uh, but, uh, really, yeah. really sad. Probably the saddest part of the second movie. But uh, um, yeah, he was, he was unbelievable as Willie Mays Hayes, like unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Again, this is one of my all time favorite movies. I generally don't like sequels, but this movie was set up to be a franchise or to have other good sequels after it. And I was so excited for Major League Two because I knew they could do a lot with these characters. And, oh, I, I, there have been very few daggers to my heart bigger than, oh,
1: Wesley Snipes has decided he doesn't want to play Willie Mays Hayes anymore. I mean, yeah, how quickly did his career, like, blow up that he's just like, I don't want to be Willie? I mean, all these other guys came back. Come on, Wesley, what are you doing for us? Maybe you could have paid your taxes if you played that move, <laughs> if you took that role in, Pete, in season two. Is, is that too soon? Is that too soon to use that joke? No, it's fine. That's It's just soon enough, actually. Okay, fair enough.
0: But, yeah, so he did did this movie. He did White Men Can't Jump, another one of my favorites. So, you know, he was up for bigger and better things. But, oh, my God, if they could only have – Major League Two is not that bad. It could have been a great movie. It just isn't. But, anyway, that Wesley Snipes thing always kills me. Okay, let's talk about a couple other players. Uh, Pedro Serrano,
1: who I know is a personal favorite of yours, as you are a fellow Cuban. Love me some Pedro Serrano. Like I said, Dennis Habert – kills it as as the as the Cuban crusher and he um you know it's funny Mario during my rewatch I had another aha moment you ready for this one okay I it just hit me again after watching the movie dozens of times it hit me why he wears number 13 uh why would that I've missed this why because he's like all into like voodoo and evil and like luck and like the dark side you know he's praying to Joe Boo he's got a snake in the thing it's like of course he's gonna use number 13 it's like it's like the evil number Great, now you've offended all my voodoo listeners. <laughs> no but I'm, it, it, I never thought I never I never thought about it once and I'm like, wait, 13 makes sense. It's like it's like you know 13's like the haunted floor on like all the hotels like that's why he wears 13 because he's like a little bit in the dark side.
0: <laughs> okay, so
1: Pedro Serrano, if you haven't watched the movie
0: or haven't seen it in a while, big, scary shaved head black voodoo guy who is without question the most intimidating player on the team. Everyone else is terrified of him. I have no idea how Rachel Phelps found this guy and voted him and invited him into camp. But uh, yeah, he's just got that big, deep voice. He's intimidating as all hell. He scares people. He does voodoo rituals at his cube or at his his little cubby. And the thing is, in Major League Two, he's treated very comedically, In Major League One, I appreciate that they don't do that. They actually treat this guy like a real dude, and
1: everyone's just scared of him. Yeah, I guess it, that that's actually the funny one of the funniest things about him because his, cha- his character changes so much from one to two. He comes from like being like this, like, you know, dark side, like big, bad, scary, like ter- almost like Terminator type figure to like, you know, uh, whatever his turn, his big turn in Major League Two. He's like kind of discovers like yoga and inner peace and like it softens him up a lot. But yeah, he's a big, bad motherfucker in-, in Major League One. And I gotta I actually have I actually have a really an interesting story for you, Mario, about meeting. The real uh, Pedro Serrano in real life. Can I I, I, can I share this? Do we have time? Absolutely. Share it. Okay, really interesting. So and did. uh, So uh, from my just give you guys a quick background. So obviously, you had mentioned I was on the show Survivor. And one of the things I I did to get on that was uh, my friends and I were were kind of infamous for crashing things. We show up to things and break into like parties and things that we had no business going to. First one that we ever did was when the New Orleans Saints won the Super Bowl in Miami um, a little over 10 years ago. Um, I lived in Miami. My buddy came out and he had this whole plan where we we're going to sneak into the Super Bowl. We were young. We didn't have any fucking money. We we're like, but he had read a book about some guy who had snuck into like the first 30 Super Bowls or something. So long story short, we couldn't get into the physical game. But we set up this like series of like <clears throat> uh, we set up this like I concept. where like, OK, we're going to go to the team hotel and fi- kind of like finagle our way into their team party. And during us using a series of like little strategies and shit, we like actually did it and got into the team party where the New Orleans Saints were celebrating the Super Bowl af- hours after winning. And literally in the in that place, it was the Saints team, like their organization, like the front office, their family members and like a small group of like celebrities. And oddly enough, one of the celebrities was Dennis Haber, who plays Pedro Serrano. Hmm. And uh, Kelsey Grammer was there, Harry Connick Jr., a bunch of like, I guess, uh, Louisiana-related celebrities. I don't know how they got in there, but – and Dennis Haber was the one guy. People kept trying to take pictures with him, and this is a real story, Mario. People were trying to take pictures with him, and he would refuse. All these other people, all the athletes, all the celebrities, everyone's like taking pictures with him. It's all good. He just refused to take any photos, and I was like – I remember coming up to him like kind of close, and somebody's like – he's like, no, 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 no pictures, no pictures. And if somebody from the back literally yells out – well fuck you joe boo and dude i literally have never like me and like 10 other people just started laughing so hard because he literally, this guy's like drinking in the back he's like refusing the guy's refusing to like pictures somebody he just goes fuck you joe boo and i literally was like that's one of the greatest moments in my life Just the sheer the set you know how many how the stars had to align for that comedic moment to happen it was unbelievable <laughs>
0: That's one of the greatest stories I've ever heard on Staff Picks. Thank you. 100% true story. 100% true story. Yeah, I I love uh, Dennis Haysbert in this because, again, he's this big, scary voodoo guy. Apparently, he was really good at baseball. I remember reading, or some of the DVD extras say that he became a really good hitter just through practice, that some of the home runs in this
1: movie, he legitimately hits. Like, that's Dennis Haysbert doing that. I thought his swing actually looked the most convincing, and like the scene where he's hitting in batting practice at in spring training, like didn't look very edited. It looked like he actually like got into some of those baseballs pretty well. Yeah, and and uh,
0: the, especially at the end, there's the final game. Like everyone remembers, anybody who knows Major League knows the final game like like the back of their hand. I know every little detail of that final game. But there's one underrated moment that I think was a big one in the theater that people tend probably don't remember these days. And that's fucking Serrano hitting a curveball for the first time and just how hard he hits that ball.
1: Yeah, just what, what, what a, this is, uh if I'm not mistaken, right, this is when he, like, is, is down O two 2 and, like, has, like, a self-conversation with, like, has a conversation with himself and goes, like, all right, Joe Boo, like, if it's not going to be you, I'm going to do it myself, like, that's, like, that's. That's it, yeah, that's the fuck you Joe Boo scene, yeah, and then. That's the fuck you Joe Boo scene, exactly. <laughs> and then he just
0: murders that ball, and I know that's Dennis Haysbert really doing that, that's not CGI or special effects, like, he absolutely hammers that ball, that's one of the greatest home runs I have ever seen in a movie.
1: Yeah, it's 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 electric. They should have stolen the 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 music from the natural. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just rub it into your team again. Just uh Yeah, just really just fucking just drill us again. <laughs> but
0: yeah, Dennis Haysbert was great because he's in this movie and then I never saw him again in anything. I just know him as Joe Boo or as uh, as Serrano. And then all of a sudden he's in the show 24 as the president
1: of the United States. I was about to say that. I was like, don't, when you said I didn't saw him again, I'm like, don't don't tell me you don't know he's the president from 24. Yeah, but it took me like two seasons to realize, is that fucking Pedro Serrano?
0: Like I kind of got his voice, but he's so different from Serrano, I didn't even realize that was the same dude. It's
1: unbelievable, right? It's what what a departure. Like talk about I mean, that's probably why he hated it because he like probably got he didn't want to play like Pedro Serrano type characters. He's like I'm a real thespian. Like he probably that's why he didn't want to take any photographs and fucking yes is yeah i played the president meanwhile people are bringing him
0: cigars and rum every five minutes he's like (laughs) stop it i'm an i'm I'm an actor yeah they're like yeah man whatever you say go get him (laughs) okay let's skim through these other characters so we got roger dorn played by corbin burnston are you are you a dorn fan
1: dorn is again like to kind of speak on what we discussed earlier dorn's another guy where we um using the like non baseball everyday like quotables he's great like when whenever me and my best friend are like trying to get the other one to do anything we always do the Roger Dorn like the nope nope which is it's actually from the second movie but it's still like Roger Dorn is is yeah he's he's a he's a great caricature and I actually kind of in this last most recent rewatch kind of grasped him a little bit more because um, you know, I, I know a lot of Roger Dorn guys now through like my poker games and stuff like he's like that country club, wall street journal, like, you know, kind of like, you know, holier than thou guy. And it's like, it's funny to see that. And I, I guess as a kid, I didn't understand it. I just looked at him as a jerk. Right. Uh-huh. When I was, when I was watching the movie, but he's a, uh, he's a very interesting, like late eighties, like greed is good type character, you know?
0: Yeah. And Corbin Bernsen was on LA law. If people don't know. Very well-known for always playing a uh, good-looking, blonde, pretty boy asshole. So he was a perfect choice for Roger Dorn. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. (laughs) Although, you know, there's one moment at the end of the movie that somebody had to point out to me. I didn't catch this when I was 15. That uh, I guess we'll talk about it when we get to the final game. That Dorn is actually kind of the reason Ricky strikes out Clue Haywood at the end. Because Dorn actually shows leadership, gets Ricky to focus. I guess I didn't
1: quite put that together when I was a kid. I guess I never tied that either too. You're right. I never I never thought of it in like that transitive property where it's like Ricky's nervous about what he did and then Dorn basically is like comes up to him being like, I know what we know, which would happen with his wife, but he's like, Go strike this motherfucker out and like that's it. And then Ricky's laser focused and, you know, go goes out and gets him, you know. Yeah. But that's that's actually a story arc for Dorn that I think a lot of people miss. I I mean, I agree. I, I this is news to me right now. I was I was today years old when I, I figured it out. Like
0: Okay, so we got two other players I want to talk about. Uh, Eddie Harris, who is one of my dark horse favorites in this movie, the old slot ball pitcher, the old Gaylord Perry. Are you an Eddie Harris fan?
1: Yeah, ha- Harris is great. My buddy and I were discussing it the other day. It's it's uh, another guy that I wish came back for for the second movie. I think he got replaced by uh, Shoop or something like that. But he's great, and his whole, like – him versus Serrano thing where he's like, hey, we should do some prayer. Not like you savages. Like he's a, he's, he's a very hilarious, like old timey pitcher guy, lathering up his body with Vaseline <laughs> and doing all sorts of crazy shit. Like he's a guy who'd not, who would not pass today's major league baseball, foreign stuff, substance, uh, uh, cracked. <laughs> uh, yeah. I love Harris. Love Harris. Yeah. For people who don't know
0: baseball history, this is a very, uh, common trope in baseball history. This is very realistic. The, old man who can't throw 95 miles an hour anymore now he's throwing 80 and to uh, get around that what you do is you put foreign substances on the ball and baseball has always kind of had a wink wink nudge nudge we don't we don't really allow that kind of thing but everyone knows old pitchers do it and eddie harris is the uh epitome of that to the point that he's openly
1: uh what is he putting on his body he's got vagicil at one point yeah, it's actually funny. I caught it in this last rewatch when he's pitching, when Harris is on the mound. The uh you know, and I'm sure we'll talk in depth about our boy uh, Bob Uecker in the booth as Harry Doyle, but uh, he actually announces his pitches as the substance he's using. He's like Vaseline ball grounded to short. <laughs> it's like, it's like really funny because it's like he's basically calling him out for what he's doing, which is like would be would never happen in a real game, but it's so funny. It's amazing. Yeah, I
0: I love how casual Bob Uecker is with the phrase K Y ball. Yeah, K- K-Y ball.
1: <laughs> so great.
0: You know, when I'm, when I'm 15, I don't realize that's dirtier than I think it is.
1: <laughs> right, right. That's that's the genius of Bobby O'Grean.
0: Okay, so we've got all the players except for one. I want to save Jake for last. Let's talk about the manager here, Lou Brown, who has got to be one of
1: the most underrated parts of this movie. Um, I am going to disagree with you because v- Lou Brown, wait for it, is arguably my favorite character ah. in the entire series. I love Lou Brown. I think he's, if you notice, I have unintentionally quoted him several times in, in, so far during this podcast. Um, I think he's great. I think he's like the glue that ties everything together. He's like almost, almost like he's like the most realistic character in, in the movie. Like he's like, I could see a Lou Brown making it in coaching. Like I've oh. had guys that were like Lou Brown. And I love him. He's like, he's, he's wise. He's funny. He's like, he's just, oh man, everything about Lou Brown just does it for me. Like literally love Lou Brown. And that's another role, by the way, to Mario. It's like, you know, for baseball people in baseball movies or sports movies to look like and swing and throw like baseball players. Very important. Dude, there's sometimes when you can see a coach or a manager in these films and you're like, this guy doesn't act like a coach. Like that guy is, he's spot on as he like the old been through it all seen it all coach like he's he is spot on in that role yeah and it makes you wonder why he wasn't coaching before like like you said
0: everything he does looks and talks like a real baseball coach a why didn't he have a job he's working in tire world b how the hell did rachel phelps even know about him
1: at tire world well, he. What she says is he was in the coaching the Toledo Mudhens for 30 years, which I think is like another jab in Ohio, right? Because it's like, oh, he's in fucking Toledo, like fuck that place, like you know what I'm saying? Like think about it, the writers from Ohio, it's, uh, it, you know, the Mud Hens are like it's kind of a comical name for like a shitty team, like oh, he's coaching the Mud Hens, you know? Um, yeah, he's he's great. I love everything about Lou Brown. Every like, and he's another guy who has like a bunch of little like kind of uh one like um movie quotes that you can easily gloss over. But like, you know, one of my favorites in the rewatch is like, he's talking to Jake and he's like, Jake, how are your knees doing? Jake's like, ah, they're okay. He's like, He's like, uh, I wouldn't lie to you, coach. And he goes, Yeah, you better if you want to make this team. Like those little like one-liners that do, we say. Uh, one of my buddies in college used to say that all the time for anything. I'd be like, Yo, keep passing my phone. I'd be like, yeah, you better if you want to make this team. Like, you just say that shit all the time. Like, it's so great, man. Lou Brown, I can't, I can't, I can't gush enough about him. Okay, well, I can't call him underrated if he's your favorite because
0: I was gonna argue he may be my favorite too. He's awesome. But about oh nice yeah, the actor James Gammon, one of the all-time great movie voices just growly gravelly kind of like sam elliott like i cannot picture anybody in this movie playing the manager but james gammon
1: you're 100 right yeah that's a that's the perfect way to describe it it's like that gravelly like he's just like every time he says something he's like he's like ah sh-. it's like he should start every line he says with ah shit like that's literally like he's like and that character is so fucking awesome it's so pure especially for this team and what they're you know with the the theme of the movie you know
0: all right, and with that, we have finished most of the team, and now we're going to come to who is really the glue of this story. And this is an actor I have always loved ever since I saw him in a movie called uh, Wrestler's Rhapsody back in the early 80s. He's just, every movie he has ever been in, I'm always impressed by how much just uh, kind of gravitas, just depth he brings to a role. He's always the rock. He's always the leader. He's always the captain. And this is why I was so excited at the time that they picked Tom Berenger
1: to play Jake Taylor. Now, are you a Behringer fan? You know, it's funny. I haven't. I, I. I. He's a guy where I know I've seen him in other things, but like it's like what you said earlier. Like when I look at him, I look at literally Jake Taylor. Like I don't think mm. I could ever see him and not see Jake Taylor. Like he's just he's not Tom Behringer to me. He's Jake Taylor. <laughs>
0: And that's, that's, I mean, that's a testament to him. Again, just one of those actors from that era who I just have always loved because he's throws himself into characters and he's so believable. And again, this movie could have been much more cartoony without him. And that's, that's what I would argue is major league Two. It's much more cartoony, but because you have Jake's story in the middle here, it always stays grounded in the real world, which is something that I tends to, I think tends to get overlooked a little bit. How, again, how realistic this movie is. It
1: feels like real life. Yeah. He, his, his storyline, his, um, you know, his story is really like out of all the guys with, you know, their underdogs are coming out of nowhere. You know, Rick Vaughn from, you know, jail. Willie Mays Hayes is out as an outcast for Pedro Serrano, like. Can't do this. Like he's the guy who has the true redemption story, right? He has the fullest arc in the whole movie. If you think about it, they're like, you know, even um, <clears throat> his uh, Rene Russo says when he's that when he crashes like the cocktail party, he's like he was one of the best in baseball until he got hurt. And like you just see his entire he has the fullest arc, I think, in the entire film and the films really I agree is the films very d- driven by his story and he's just great. He's great in that leadership role. It's easy to play that role, Mario, think about it, and make it a little cheesy or a little hokey mm-hmm. or or to make it too dark for the movie. I think he like blends both things right in the middle. Like he's not it's not that dark of a character, but like you said, it's not that cartoony of a character. So, um he he just works great at it and he's 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 Jake Taylor and he's 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 amazing.
0: Yeah, and one thing I wanted to point out and you just kind of touched on it is how much you learn about Jake's backstory in this movie and how sad his story really is. But it's always delivered by somebody else. Someone will say something about him, or what they knew about him, what they remembered. And it's amazing how much you actually learn about his character. And it's, a very, and it's a very sneaky way. It doesn't feel like exposition,
1: which I just think it's very clever the way they do it. It's incredibly clever. And you can see how seriously he takes it, like even in the early scenes in spring training where he's like shows up and he's like, all right, you know, he's happy to make the team. He's watching his eyes through it. He's like he's he's been there, done that. And you're getting to see like, you know, if, if, if put it this way. If you had to pick a guy to be like, we have to make a prequel for one person in this movie, who would it be? It has to be Jake Taylor, right? It's got to be like the Jake Taylor. If you, if, if Major League had a prequel, which I'm sure it never would, mm-hmm. but Jake Jake Taylor's the guy. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so we've named all the players. We've
0: named the team, blah, blah, blah. And I, I mentioned this earlier that on the DVD they have a whole extra thing about the training camp that all these players went to and how they all got really good at baseball. Like everybody in this movie can pass for a baseball player. Do you know the one who's actually the weakest athlete of them all, and they had to use camera tricks to make him look athletic? This might surprise you.
1: Mm, okay, I, I'm I, I don't I don't have that background. I'm just going from my my eyeball test. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be surprised. It can't be Wesley Snipes. Okay, I'm gonna have to say it was Roger Dorn. It has to be Roger Dorn. It is Wesley Snipes. No way! Really? Apparently,
0: apparently he is a terrible athlete in real life, and I've read this before. I did an episode on white man can't jump. And apparently Woody Harrelson was so much better than him at basketball that they had to use
1: camera tricks to make Wesley Snipes look good. That's a really that's a really interesting nugget because like of all the guys, if you picked like who's the best, best athlete, most people would pick him, right? Because not mm-hmm. only is he you know, an action star, but he's, like, has, he has multiple, like he like said, he has multiple sports movies. He's in a baseball movie. He's in a basketball movie. He's, like, you know, he's Blade. Like, he's got all this shit going on. I would never, I never would have picked that. Never would have thought yeah, about that. Yeah, and I think he's, like, a black
0: belt, too. He's, like, a huge martial arts guy. But it's, right, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of notorious that someone pointed out, if you watch Major League, every single time Willie Mays Hayes is running, it's in slow motion. And you'll notice they only do that to make Wesley Snipes look faster than he actually is. I never knew that. (laughs) Yeah, just watch for it. But, like, the other guys are all really good. Dennis Haysbert got really good. uh, Dorn, Corbin Burnson was good. Even uh, Eddie Harris. Now, the actor, have you ever seen the actor who plays Eddie Harris before? Because I'm a big fan of him in other sports movies, too. No, what else is he in? Isn't he a coach in something? Yeah, he is in the holy trinity of great sports movies. He's in Hoosiers. Okay. He is the asshole dad who doesn't like Coach Normandale and tries to get him run out of town. And then he's in Rudy as the asshole coach who will not suit Rudy up on the final game. That's where okay, yeah.
1: I, I I've s I have do not I, I didn't remember him from Hoosiers, but Rudy makes sense. Okay, that makes sense.
0: So that's Chelsea Ross. One of the I, I always say, if you see Chelsea Ross in a sports movie, it's gonna
1: be good. I love that guy. It's gonna be good, yeah, it makes sense.
0: Okay, so let's skim through the plot here. So we have the team, they've been assembled, and basically they're just destined to be terrible. They were designed to be the worst team ever so the team can move to Miami next year. And basically, the first half of the movie is montage of them going through spring training. And is there anything in particular you want to
1: talk about in the training montage? Um, no. I mean, I, again, to kind of go back on how Lou Brown is, I think again, Lou Brown is is kind of you might be right. He is underrated. If you notice, he like goes to everybody specifically. Again, it makes sense because he's the manager. But he's like he's the audience's insight to every player's because every every player in the team. I feel like has a juxtaposition of like almost a super talent and a super flaw, right? It's like mm-hmm. Jake Taylor is super, very experienced, former, former, you know, major league all-star, but his knees and his body is giving up on him. You know, uh, Rick Ricky Vaughn has unbelievable abilities to throw baseball, but doesn't have any command. William Mays Hayes has this incredible speed, but keeps popping the ball up. And you just see, you know, Serrano, he's like, who's this guy? How did he hit the ball so far? And then he's like, Harris, hey, throw him a curveball. And he's like, oh shit, that's what it is. It's like you see Lou Brown kind of identify everybody's like, Superpower, but also their super flaw now it 's like it 's on him to figure out okay how do i how do I make it work with these guys and that's I think that 's really interesting because spring training shows us guy by guy by guy what they you know roger Dorn. You know he's a good player, but he's he doesn't want to he doesn't want to like his body he's like one foot in one foot out. He doesn't really want to he just want to get in front of the ball. Like, he's <laughs> Lou Brown's like, come on, Dorn with that old lay bullshit. Like he's like looking at him like, what the fuck's wrong with you, man? Like you're supposed to be a good player. So it's uh, it, I I love that I love that vantage point as like a coach, you know?
0: Yeah, now so you you've spent a lot of time coaching, so you actually have thought about this more. So yeah, so
1: that is what a baseball coach would do in like a spring training scenario. Yeah, they they evaluate their players, and then, like, he he finds out he has all these, like, you know, kind of broken pieces in a way. Like, he's like, okay, every one of these guys has something that's, like, could be really valuable as a team, but they have a huge, huge flaw. And now it's, like, on him to, like, run these guys out there and figure out how to improve it. And, uh, and, you know, and it's funny because, to his credit, Lou Brown comes up with, like, a little bit of a – a little workaround for each guy. He's like, all right, Willie Willie say, you're gonna have to give me push-ups. Eventually, you know, uh, Rick Va- Ricky Vaughn, he's like, eventually figures out. He's like, wait, we should get you some glasses. Like he he actually is the one that creates the solutions for all the other guys. It's actually pretty great.
0: Yeah, <laughs> there's a the couple things that stand out to me in this spring training scene. The first is uh obviously every everybody remembers this scene is Wild Thing Vaughn trying to learn control where they just put Charlie Sheen out there with a little pitching dummy like a little metal mannequin type type dude. And he
1: just basically obliterates the shit out of it because he has no idea where that ball's going. Oh, it's unbelievable. That's something that, like, in baseball circles will live forever. I remember we used to, like, have pitchers throwing to, like, maybe not they weren't cardboard cutouts, but, like, dummies. And, like, listen, there, there's no team in the country who hasn't had a guy like that who won't make a Ricky Vaughn reference. If one guy lets one get away, he'd be like, all right, easy there, Vaughn. Like, <laughs> it's fucking fantastic on this
0: last rewatch the thing that was making me laugh was uh you know pedro serrano the big power hitter cannot hit a curveball the fate of both albert and me not not the breaking ball hitters but i love how far off he is when he's missing those curveballs the first couple ones where the the guy will just throw a batting practice curveball which anybody should be able to make contact with and serrano swings like at full strength and somehow misses it by about five feet and he also says
1: Oi! It's like not even close. I just love how off he is. And you see his like frustration. He like he like slams the bat. He you're like, you're like you could tell it's like this isn't the first time this has been an issue for this guy, and it's gonna be a big big issue. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a very interesting uh, and I, and I relate to it by the way. I've been there. It's not easy to hit a fucking curveball, man. Breaking balls are hard. I think they should be illegal. I mean, fastballs. If baseball played with fastballs only, I, I might have still I might have made the big leagues actually. So I I can relate to that. Yeah, I was
0: okay with curveballs because curveballs you just try to hit it to the right side. Sliders are fucking evil. Now, I'll, let's explain to people who aren't baseball player what the difference between a curveball and a slider is.
1: Well, generally, there's two big differences. The curveball is more, um, if you look, if you think of a clock, you know, the the, the the traditional clock, it's like starts at like the 12 and breaks down to the six or starts at like the one and breaks down to the seven. It's more up and down, whereas sliders are more lateral movement. So sliders will start at like three and go to nine from a right hander or two to go to um, what is that? Uh yeah, it's kind of in that same direction. Also, the curveball's slower and loopier, the slider is vol- usually a little bit firmer and sharper with its with its break. So, I agree with you. I actually think sliders are probably tougher to hit, like right on right sliders. Yeah, that was the thing cuz
0: I was inherently scared of the ball. And I could get away with it because I was bigger than everybody and I had quick wrists. But I get up to like 17, 18 years old and I'm I remember I faced a kid who pitched for Stanford University. He was on my Legion team. And he's like, "I'll just throw you batting practice sliders." And I'd never seen a slider before, and for people who've never played baseball, you're standing at home plate, and he starts pitching, and it's going to hit you in the butt every time. That's where the slider comes, butt or back. So your instinct is to move out of the way, and then it just darts right over the plate over the inside corner, kind of like right in front of your nut. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, how am I ever going to pitch? If I'm scared of the ball, how am I ever, ever, ever going to come
1: even close to hitting that pitch? Never and the second and the and the, and the 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 tragic part of baseball is this the moment the very moment that you either physically or mentally bail on the pitch like you know think of like let me get out of the way or let me move. Like you're done because now with the way the ball is breaking, like your entire body's going one way and the ball's going the other way. And now you're fucked. Like you're going to, you're going to miss. I will never be good at baseball again. And I, I remember
0: specifically my senior year in high school, I played a guy against a guy named Mark Hendrickson,
1: who I believe pitched for the Dodgers. Yeah, man. Mark Hendrickson was the six. He's one of the tallest pitchers in baseball. Actually. He was like six, six foot nine, big, big hulking, uh, left-handed pitcher actually yeah, played against me in high school, which was not fair. Yeah, monster guy, monster, one of the biggest, one of, like, the
0: ten biggest pitchers ever, actually. Six foot ten with a left-handed slider. And I'm like, I'm just going to retire from baseball right now. I'm done. I'm, I'm going to be a programmer. So yeah, I, you surprised
1: I knew who Mark Hendrickson was? I told you, buddy, I, 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 I like baseball a little bit.
0: No, I knew, you, I knew you'd know him because he's a, yeah, I figured you'd know him. But I, just, I thought, my little trivia fact that I played against him.
1: That's it. That's great, man. <laughs> Love that. Okay,
0: so anyway, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of stress the team sucks there's drama over who's going to get cut and i'm going to skip over that just because i want to keep this podcast fairly short eventually everybody on the team makes the team even ricky vaughn who was the biggest uh wild card because he has no idea where the ball is going and with that i think this is where we start getting in the the subplot with jake and lynn his girlfriend right yeah yeah okay which is the heart of the movie i'm not going to talk too much about it you need it in the movie to give the movie its heart, but I want to talk about the baseball stuff more. So let's just say, if you're fine with this, the Jake and Lynn stuff is very interesting. It gives a lot of depth that holds the movie together, but I'd rather talk about the baseball scenes. Agreed, 100%. <laughs> okay. Let's get to opening day here, because this is where the movie, the movie is fun at the start, but when they get to opening day, when you introduce Bob Euchre, this is where it really kicks up to the next level.
1: Yeah, Bob, Bob Euchre, man, is... I mean, I, I I don't know where you're at, where you stand, Mario, but like if Lou Brown's my 1A favorite character, I think Bob, Bob Euchre might be my 1B. I don't know. It's really, really close. He's so good. He's so um, amazing at what he does. I um I, I read somewhere, or I think I heard somewhere that, you know, Bob Euchre was selected for this role based on his, you know, he had like a famous series of miller Lite commercials in the 80s, right? And I feel like that mm-hmm. kind of catapulted him to this role, right? Yeah. Okay. You're a little younger. You might not know. He was on a sitcom, you know, his sitcom, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. He was on a... Mr. Belvedere, right? Wasn't he, uh... Okay, so, yeah, for people who don't know, Albert probably know this, but this is for my listeners. Bob Eucher, very famous, terrible baseball player from the 60s. He could not hit. He was ridiculous. But he was a very good speaker and spokesperson. He'd do interviews. They'd have him on The Tonight Show. He just wrote books about baseball. Everybody loved this guy in the 70s and 80s. It parlayed into... He was a spokesperson for Light Beer for Miller. He did all the commercials. He ended up being, uh on a sitcom mr belvedere in the 80s they gave him a role he's just so naturally funny he's not even an actor they just threw him into a sitcom he ended up being the voice of the milwaukee brewers a real life baseball announcer so this guy was very 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 well known very beloved very funny and then you throw him in this movie as the narrator and he kills it every single line has in this movie
1: i think is a improvised and b killer unbelievable i couldn't agree with you more he's uh a I mean if you think about his trajectory to be like uh you know a self-described, you know, uh, less than spectacular former ball player who parlayed that into like dude, he was a regular with Johnny Carson. Like they just had him on cuz he was funny. He would tell funny baseball stories and like make I feel like he was one of the early kings in a comedic standpoint of really owning, like, self-deprecating humor. You know what I'm saying? Like, he would, like, really crush, like, making himself the butt of the joke while also being really smart and really quick. And what a lot of people don't realize is he's, like, one of the greatest actual baseball broadcasters ever. Mm -hmm. Like, he's a very, very good baseball broadcaster who just happens to be very, very funny. He's a national treasure. I actually saw his, like, I think MLB Network did a whole special on him, man, and it's, like, super interesting to watch his – um his abilities how he works with different partners and um even his relationship with his his partner in the booth i actually think is really funny because his partner is very it's almost like the pen and teller kind of like dynamic um i think it's actually really fantastic how does baseball work with a teller on broadcast it does with monty because monty doesn't say anything on the broadcast
0: (laughs) Uh, i'm jealous i grew up in seattle dave niehaus was our baseball guy everyone loves him in seattle I am still jealous that I didn't grow up in Milwaukee and never got to hear Bob Euchre call baseball games. I'm with you on that. I agree with that. Yeah. Okay, so Euchre is going to steal every goddamn scene in this movie, <laughs> including. Now, here's my personal favorite quote. And I feel bad because this is such an obvious quote. I wish I had a, a smaller one. But, like, I cannot tell you how many times in my lifetime someone has thrown a ball that's 12 feet outside in Little League, and I will say, just a bit outside, tried the corner and missed. Try the corner. <laughs>
1: Ball ball four, ball eight, ball 12. Like, he's he's like, I can't believe, uh, like, his uh, breakdown in, like, using um – Just great exaggeration. He's like, how are they laying off pitches so close? (laughs) Or like Willie Mays Hazel, like dribble a ball and he'd be like, hot shot to second base here. (laughs) Like, he's just like so great. You're right. Everything that comes out of his mouth is utter gold in this film. Like Bob Uecker is if you don't even like think about it, if you don't like baseball and you don't even like really like this movie, it's I think it's almost impossible to watch his scenes and not at least grin a little bit and be like this. This guy's great. Like, you know what I'm saying? And going back to your story about you showed those girls, Bull Durham, they didn't care. I bet they'd crack up at Bob Euchre.
0: So that's the difference between Major League and Bull Durham. One is so much more accessible to the non baseball
1: junkie. 100%. Yeah, you'd,
0: 100%. Okay, here's another favorite Euchre line. I forgot about this one. Okay, so. This is more of an inside baseball joke. Albert and I will laugh more than our general audience at this. So, Ricky Vaughn comes in, and the the Indians just get crushed in their first game. (laughs) Nine to nothing. Ricky Vaughn walks the bases loaded, gives up a grand slam, and they're like, Should I go pull him out of the game now? And the manager's like, Nah, leave Vaughn in. Let's see what happens. And you know what's going to happen. You and I know this because this is how baseball works. If a pitcher's pissed, the next pitch is going to be right in the batter's back. So, Ricky Vaughn drills the next batter. And and the manager's like interesting, and here's the Euchre line that I always love. About time it's eight nothing. <laughs> <laughs> just like real subtle, right? Like real under the announcer. The announcer is like about time he threw it somebody. Why wasn't he pissed yet? So that's just a little baseball thing that baseball people know. If it's a blowout and the pitcher's mad, someone's gonna get drilled. And Euchre even doesn't doesn't have any pretense about this at all. He's just like
1: yeah, about time he hit him. I've been waiting for it. I love he, my, one of my favorite things about Euchre just from a, from a, like a thematic standpoint is he's constantly, if you notice like his style, he's balancing two ideas at all times. He's using like this like over the top, kind of like funny, Over optimism, like the Indians drop a nail biter and it's like nine nothing, right? (laughs) Or he's just like blatantly being like, oh, to hell with it. Like, this is like, he's either like everything's very polarized with him. It's like either being like comedically super positive or just like calling out the negative in a way, like, ah, no one's listening anyway. (laughs) Like, He's like at the end of the one thing. He's like, uh, and the and the and the Indians uh, lose this on on whatever. Uh, he's like one run and one hit and no two errors. And, and then he like looks over. He's like he's like one hit, one goddamn hit. Like it's so <laughs> great, it's so great. Like when he finally like he's trying to be that positive guy through a shitty, and then when he breaks it and goes the other way, it's like unbelievably good too. <laughs> There's a uh one little
0: throwaway line that just made me think of where he's talking. It's it's teepee talk. He's got a little talk show. Yeah. He's like yeah. uh. Have, have you noticed the Indians have been getting better lately judging by the attendance
1: you haven't noticed
0: yeah <laughs> he's just
1: like jab He does a little bit of a jab at everybody
0: yeah yeah but i just love the the idea of these long-suffering baseball announcers who have been through so much hell over the years and they have to be positive on the air and you just see that with bob uecker and oh, I, oh that reminds me of a story you'll like this one so the mariners had a longtime baseball announcer dave niehaus do you know him yeah 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 niehaus Beloved guy, just gentlemanly, grandfatherly. Everyone loved Dave Niehaus, the, the epitome of class and positivity. But there's one really famous clip. Someone audience, someone uh, recorded once of him just swearing, and it floats around on uh you know the dark web of Seattle Mariners message boards. And there was a reliever named J.J. Putz, and he came into the game once. Oh, I remember J.J. Putts. He was great. He was a closer for a little bit, yeah. He was, but this, I think, was before Putts was good, because Niehaus hears that Putz is coming in the game, and someone hit record because they knew Niehaus was going to go on a little rant. And it's the greatest clip. you got to find it someday. Niehaus is like, oh, great, they're going to bring in this big, big, tall fucker so he can walk the whole fucking world. <laughs> I love that. That's some straight up Bob Euchre shit right there. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, those are these longtime
1: announcers, you know, you know the rage is building up and they just don't want to let it out. Did you ever hear the story about? And I, I might butcher this, but I'm hoping you might know it. The Bob Euchre story where he created a fake reporter character. No, tell me. Like a fake correspondent. Yeah, I, I might butcher it, but it was it was something to do with. Oh, that's what it was. It was it was in. Uh, he was a French Canadian reporter, and it was a character that he created. So they, uh, the story goes, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to probably butcher, it, but he. They were playing the Expos, and either he wrote a column as, like, this French-Canadian uh, reporter and came up with, like, a whole name. He was, like, Jean-Pierre LeBlanc or whatever, <laughs> and he's just, like – and he's, like, writing this whole thing, but it's, like, satire, mm-hmm. but it's, like – he was, like, so in-depth in, in depth that, like, nobody knew that it was a fake reporter, and it was, like – this whole thing, like, it started becoming, like, an inside joke amongst the, like, the broadcasters and the baseball writers that, like, oh, we can't wait to hear what Jean-Pierre Leblanc's going to write about this guy. <laughs> game or whatever and it was really like bob euchre like running this long gag and he would never admit to like or he would like quote him on the on-air thing like they'd be doing the pregame show and be like john pierre LeBanque wrote this like what do you think about this And it was like him like fucking with them it was like un like clear like bob euchre's like comedic genius just like really ahead of his time you know what what all this baseball talk we're kind of veering off from the movie
0: a little bit but it's i just want to talk to my audience a little bit that Listen to how much joy Albert and I have got over sports and baseball over the years. How much laughs and stories and jokes that it has brought to our life. And I always think it's so interesting. You hear a lot of people nowadays just, "Oh, I hate sports. I hate sports ball. I don't like sports culture." But like, like, would you in a,
1: would you regret for a second you've had all the sports in your lifetime? Not at all. I actually like to tell people. So, I left college with. So in, in college baseball, you have. Um, yeah, the most scholarships that can be given out are 11.7 scholarships. That's the maximum they can give out. Usually a team has about 30, 35 guys at the division two level it's about nine. So most guys who play college baseball, it's almost impossible to have a full scholarship, right? So. You know, I left college with a little bit of debt. I had I had a, a partial baseball scholarship, but I didn't have a full scholarship. And I always like to joke, Mario, that like they're like, "Oh, Albert, what's your degree in?" And I'm like, "Well, I left with about 40 grand in debt because I left with a degree in baseball. Like that's kind of like what I like learned and like really studied and focused on. Like my whole life and my whole like upbringing was baseball. And I think like Baseball's a microcosm, and sports are a microcosm for life, right? You have wins and losses. You have ups and downs. You have to, like – it teaches you, like, you know, life lessons on how to, like – especially the fucking sport of baseball. Like, mm-hmm. any sport where you can fail, you know, the, the old adage is if you fail seven out of ten times, you're considered, you know, an, 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 one of the best in the game. Like, it teaches you failure. It teaches you with, like, not worrying about things outside of your control and, like – I think we like need it more, even going back to your original, um, you know, the first thing you talked about at the beginning of this program, it's, Hey, as a little kid, you'd go out there and just play ball and just keep working on your hands and like teach you dedication. It teaches you teamwork. And, um, I think we need more of it, man. I think it's like so good for people. I think I would never, there's almost nothing in the world I would trade for, uh, for my background in baseball and like learning the game and being around the game. Cause I think it helped me become a better human being, honestly. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I've said the same thing. My wife has said the same thing, too. Like,
0: people that grow up with sports, they learn how to fail, and that is a very underrated thing because a lot of people, especially, like, gifted kids, kids who are always at the top of their class, kids are good at everything, some, kid, some of these kids will get to, like, college, and they have never experienced failure ever. Right. And these kids are in trouble because they do not know how to deal with that. They have mental issues. They snap. They just cannot handle that. Now, you and I played baseball our whole lives probably lost just as many games as we won but you know the thing about baseball is there's always another game tomorrow we'll play again so who cares so right. you you learn to take a loss very easily you learn not to take yourself very seriously
1: as well which is very i think very beneficial yeah 100 percent. oh baseball players are notorious lunatics because of the mental gymnastics you have to make when you're when you're oh for your last 17 and you just like strike out and you have to walk back to the dugout and then go out and play defense and like act like everything's okay. Like it makes you develop like a different level of thick skin. Like you're a hundred percent, right? Like a lot of people don't know how to fail. They don't know what it's like to get cut from a team or get benched or like be in a slump or like, you know, and th- those, that kind of shit like makes you a good person. And it makes you like, that's why some of the funniest people I've ever met in my life were people I met in baseball. It mm-hmm. turns you into these like lunatic characters. Like I've met some freaking some like hilarious people in baseball circles and I think that's what Major League is what what makes this movie work so much is those are the kind of yeah, some of it's exaggerated with like what they can and can't do physically, but those type of characters like the Roger Dorns and the Jake Taylors and the Harrises like there's a lot of guys like that in in around sports and that's what's really that's what makes this movie work is the the human element. More so than just like, can he throw a ball fast? You know what I mean? Yeah. And again, to me, this is more than a movie. Like,
0: I like movies. I talk about movies all the time. I love extrapolating themes. Major League is more than a movie to me. This is such an inspirational movie, and just the memories I have of when this movie came out, seeing it in a theater, seeing it with my mom. My mom taking me to my first movie, and I'll, I'll have a little more on that later that I really want to talk about because it's kind of powerful. But, yeah, just this is more than a movie to me. This whole seeing this movie and experiencing it and seeing how it was presented on a screen, it's really just it was a big moment for me. So that's all I wanted to get to say here, I guess. Okay, let's get back to the movie so we can actually finish this in two hours. (laughs) Let's do it. Okay, so we have big montages here. The team slowly gets better, and like I said, they kind of yada yada over a lot of it. They're like, oh, they win a game. All of a sudden, now they're 15 and 40. Oh, look, all of a sudden, now they're 60 and 60. Like, they, they really jump over some stuff. Uh, the only scene that's really, I think, significant to talk about in the middle here is the dinner party where Jake goes to uh, Lynn's dinner party, and he meets all her, her fancy guests. Yeah. And the only reason I want to mention that is because of the punchline, which among me and my friends as the kids
1: was legendary.
0: The punchline to the end of that scene, you know what I'm talking about?
1: I mean, the last thing he says in that scene is like, uh, stay away from her. But are you talking about when him and the boyfriend are walking yeah, out the door? where Lynn's boyfriend is trying to show off to Jake
0: what a loser he is and show Lynn that he, she was missing nothing by losing Jake. And at the end, of the, the boyfriend walks out. He's like, well, it's good to show her. Anyway, stay away from her. And Jake just says, suck my dick. (laughs) Yeah, suck my, that's what it is, (laughs) suck my dick. That's the ultimate comeback. That's how you end a conversation like that. Yeah, they like quietly walk
1: out and they're just being like super kind of passive
0: aggressive with each other. It's fucking great. Okay, so anyway, there's a lot of stuff I'm skipping over. I feel bad, but I want to get to the end here. So let's just say the turning point is the team gets better and better and uh, they start to learn. They start to believe in themselves and uh, the, uh, the owner, Rachel Phelps, starts taking away all our amenities, takes away their hot tub, takes away their jacuzzi, their plane, blah, blah, blah. But it will eventually culminate in the team starting to believe in themselves, and then they're told the truth of what their, the reality of their season really is. That's where it really comes about, where Charlie, the GM, comes to Lou Brown and says, you know, Rachel's
1: not going to let you win. She didn't design this team to win. Right, that's a that's an interesting turning point in the movie because it's it's a big reveal that lets that that I think actually works for like a motivator for the guys because now they're like, fuck this shit, you know. I I think at the beginning of the movie like the first motivation from Lou to the team is like every sports writer in the country picked us to finish dead last. He's like, so let's make them eat their own shit. Or forget what I forget what he's a shit burger. Oh, let's feed them a nice big shit burger. That's what he says, right? And yeah. like. And then the next big motivator becomes after Charlie has that conversation with him where now they're like, oh, okay, you want to see us lose. And I feel like, you know, my best friend and my my co-host on my my own podcast always like to say he's like he's like, there's no better motivator than spike. (laughs) Now they're (laughs) like now they're playing to spike the shit out of Rachel Phelps. And I think that's like it actually serves as a, you know, as a part of the story to like catapult them and be like, shit, yeah, we're going to play fucking even harder now to like spike this bitch. Yeah, and this is really interesting to me because, okay, so
0: here's the point of the movie. It's like the last half hour of the movie, the Indians have been told, even if you win the season, they're just going to sell all you off and get rid of you after the season. Rachel Phillips will just move next year. So, like, you have nothing to lose. So, fuck it, just do whatever. And the players all coalesce and come together like, well, let's just win just to spite her. And I actually figured this out. So, at this point in the movie, they're 60 and 60. There's a There's 42 games left in the season. They have to go 32 and 9 to make the playoffs, which... You yourself know that doesn't happen much in baseball.
1: Right, right. Yeah, it's you're, you're right, because Lou Brown tells him, he's like, the way I look at it, we need 92 wins, and that becomes like their goal. And, and it's hard to do that in Major League Baseball. It's hard to win, you know, three out of four games, but that's kind of what they need to do for the, for the remainder of the season. Yeah, but what's interesting to me is that I have lived
0: through this before, and we talked about the 1995 Mariners. This is exactly what happened with the 95 Mariners. The last half hour of this movie is the 95 Mariners season. And it's almost chilling when I watch it, how similar it is. It's, I don't know if you know, you probably don't know know too much about that
1: season. I actually do. I do remember. Didn't you guys play a one game playoff with the, not one game playoff. Was was it a wild card round or wild card game against the Yankees? The Seattle gets to the end. They finish in a tie. There's a one game playoff with the
0: angels we have the win the one game playoff and there's a very famous moment in the playoff against the Yankees where we bring in our star wild pitcher in relief to music and extra
1: innings, which is exactly like Wild Thing. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And and I if I'm not mistaken doesn't Griffey score on a Mar- Edgar Martinez double and it's like a crazy slide at the plate or something like that. He does. It's very similar. Yeah. W- which is very similar to Willie May's Hayes' slide
0: at the plate at the at the end of Major League. Yeah, okay. So we'll talk about that in a second here. So anyway, the the Indians have to go thirty two and nine over the last forty minutes of the movie, and the whole rest of the movie is them just spite winning. <laughs> and yeah. like all of a sudden they're good and it's exciting and like double steals and home runs and great defense and just I love this whole stretch of the movie.
1: Yeah, that's really fun. And one of my favorite scenes in that, in that, um, or one of my favorite elements of that part of the film is when they, they kind of tie in the live action with the newspaper headlines. It's like you'll see them do something and then it's like it becomes the headline in the next day's newspaper, like twin killing or whatever, like, you know, Indians stay hot and do this. I actually thought that was like a really cool, like, way to do a montage you know mm-hmm. that montage is like fucking legendary just because of how they did that yeah so it's not only a baseball montage but
0: you get the city of cleveland starting to believe in him like all the people that said they're shitty at the start
1: now says are like you know these guys they're not too fucking bad which is high praise in cleveland right yeah that the the that blue collar mindset that they, they outlined with like the construction workers and landscapers like kind of like being like, who are these guys? These guys suck to like, Hey, these guys aren't that bad. It's actually great. It's a really, it's a nice commentary on, like you said, like on on the, the people who actually live in Cleveland. And there's an especially nice poignant moment that this, this one actually
0: almost makes me tear up a little. It's this whole montage. Cleveland is supporting the team. They're putting, you know, Cleveland Indians' helmets on the statues. They're putting pennants in people's hands. People are talking about the Indians. And they just cut away to this old shot of these two old guys who are like 80 years old. And they're playing chess and they're both wearing Wild Thing shirts. Yeah. I-
1: which I just think is so cool that old guys would have a Wild Thing shirt. Yeah, they have like a wild thing, Rick Vaughn, like with the, like his uh, with like his silhouette on it. It's like a really badass, actually look.
0: Yeah. Okay. And with that, basically the movie ends with a uh, the Indians have come out of nowhere. They're in tied for first with the Yankees. Who, anytime you make a baseball movie, the Yankees must be the bad guys. Going back to the Bad News Bears. Are you, are you a Bad News Bears fan? Love Bad News Bears. Oh yeah. Even back in the seventies, we knew the Yankees were dicks. Right. Yeah. So anyway, here's the final game, which again. You have got to see this in a the theater
1: at some point in your life if you never have. This this is outstanding. I actually I no, yeah. I actually think that um what was I was gonna say, just to kind of comment on that, like the idea of like the the villain and how they brought it back, like I told you, I think it's something that you see before. Like at the very beginning, like when they the first game of the season, they play the Yankees and Clue Clue Hayward hits a grand slam off Rick Vaughn and like now it's like not only have they like kind of climbed the mountain, but they gotta beat that like sh- that team. Like they're like like they're like the quiet villain the whole time. You didn't hear much about the Yankees during the movie, but then at the end, it's like, oh shit, we gotta face the fucking Yankees, and it makes sense as like a logical like end boss. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is like you said, it's been built up. We skipped over it in the podcast.
0: There's a built up rivalry between these two teams. The Yankees beat them every time, and Ricky Vaughn cannot get this guy out, Clue Haywood, the Triple Crown winner. So it's it's been established. Right. Right. So here we go, the game. And I have to say a little personal anecdote here. So the final game in this movie is in Cleveland, although in real life they filmed it in Milwaukee. Did you know that?
1: I did not know that.
0: Yeah, for some reason they couldn't get the permits to Cleveland, so it's filmed in Milwaukee. That's also how they could get Euchre because he's the Milwaukee announcer. But it's actually Milwaukee Stadium, not Cleveland's. Interesting. But I have a lot of people who uh, or a couple people that are friends of mine that were there that night at the filming. No way, really? Yeah, it's apparently this big legendary thing. It was between games of a doubleheader in 1988 in Milwaukee, and they had all the fans there, and they had him cheering. So you had like an actual crowd, and what's interesting is they handed out baseball cards that night. They had a special limited edition, one time only, all the major league actors as their characters, that the only people who ever owned that set were the ones in attendance that night. How do we buy this? I like how do I get how
1: do we get our hands on one of these
0: things? Well, Albert, I'm glad you brought that up because I happen to have a collection of them. Stop. I do. I have a friend who was at that. He got the cards that night. He put them in a drawer for like 30 years. And a couple years ago, he's like, I don't really care about baseball cards, Mario. You like baseball? Would you like these? And I'm like, Hell yeah, I'd like those. So, <laughs> oh my God, that is bad. Talk about a fucking jackpot. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So I have those. I, I cannot. But I was not there. But anyway, it was a big deal. But. I remember seeing this scene for the first time in a theater with my mom. Now, keep in mind, I'm in Seattle. Seattle has never had an exciting baseball game ever. So we're watching this in a movie theater, big surround sound, movies packed, you know, 50,000 people in the stands, crazy, and, like, you just have goosebumps watching this in a theater. And I remember my mom turning to me and saying, can you imagine seeing a game like that in real life? Because
1: in Seattle, you never would have. Yeah, at that point, like, you guys were, you guys, I mean, the, the Mariners were a team, but you guys were, like, the laughing stock of the league, kind of like the Indians were. So, yeah, I don't know. That's that's some pretty interesting foreshadowing. Does this tell me, is this going where I think it's going?
0: It is going where I think it's going because six years later, the Mariners played the Yankees in the playoffs. My mom took me to that, and we really oh. experienced the exact same thing. The Kingdome in 95. Awesome. So, like, like, I almost cry watching this movie thinking back. My mom's not with me anymore, so I remember this. This, this was a big deal, this whole thing. So this whole moment of the opening of the game, it's just so
1: electrifying. It's probably the best baseball scene I've ever seen in a movie. That's unbelievable. And if I'm not mistaken, it's like – when when Ricky Vaughn enters the game, it's like the first time you hear like the actual like they play the song. The whole crowd's pumping like everybody's jazzed up. Right. I think that's the first time he walks out to it. Right. They have. Yeah. They have been teasing you with the song Wild Thing
0: throughout the movie. If you pay attention, they'll play. Right. They'll mockingly call him Wild Thing. It's playing in the background in the bar in one scene during one of the montages. They play Wild Thing, but you never see him
1: set to it coming out triumphantly until the moment at the end of the scene. Oh, it's so great. And, like, Taylor's, like, surprised. He's like, Vaughn? You're going to Vaughn? He's like, yeah, I got a gut feeling. And then you see, like, the girl run to, like, tune it up. It's actually, like, gets, like, the blood juice. Dude, I get, it gets me all juiced up when I see that. Okay, so one thing I want to say here is that uh, <laughs> there's a line I use all the
0: time on my podcast, and I stole it from Major League, and it's right here at the scene. Like, I do another podcast called Survivor Historians, where we talk about the history of Survivor. <laughs> and I love throwing to my other co-hosts, hey, do you have anything to say about that? And they'll, like, be dead silence or say no. And I'll, like, well, he's not the best color man in the league for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) That is dead stolen right here from Bob Euchre at the start of this game. That's the best. Yeah, we talk about Monty. He's like, you got anything? he's like, nope. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk through this game. So it's a pitching duel. Eddie Harris, the old crusty KY veteran for the Indians against some curveball specialist for the Yankees. And we got six scoreless innings, which, you know, a game like this would probably be like that. Now we get to the seventh, and the the Yankees score first, correct? Okay, yeah. Okay, I mean, (laughs) that's a question, right? Am I correct? Oh, I I think so. I think they do, actually, yeah. It's 2-0 Yankees, and so it looks all dim like the Indians are going to lose. And now we get to the bottom of the seventh, and this is the, you quoted it once with Dennis Haysbert at a party, I quoted it once as the greatest home run I've ever seen in a movie, the Joe, or the uh,
1: Serrano home run. So lead people through this one. Yeah, this is like, you know, I think the whole movie, they're kind of building up Serrano's like this, like kind of dark character who has like these really like weird rituals. The whole time you see him in his in the locker room and he's like, you know, he's got the he's got the rum for Joe Boo. He's got their cigar. He's like, you know, he's doing all these like weird rituals. Like Eddie Harris is like, uh, you know, uh, Harris is all mad about it. And then. The whole film, like, he's putting his, like, he's like, Joe Boo's going to help me. He's like, I have this problem. It's a mental block. Let's not talk about it. But (laughs) he's like, Joe Boo's going to help me through it. And then you get to this pivotal scene in the movie, and he's just like, strike one, breaking ball, you know, breaking ball, strike one, so we're going to miss. Breaking ball, strike two, so we're going to miss. And all of a sudden, he's like, he, like, takes a step, takes a step away from the batter's box, literally just has himself talk and says, you know what? I've come this far, Joe Boo. I've tried my best. And you're, like, kind of hanging me out to dry. He's like, you know what? I say, fuck you, Joe Boo. I'm doing it myself. And he just steps back in with this like killer, cleaner confidence and just hits a ball that absolutely just catapults out of the stadium. And, yeah, it's it's it is it is a, a moment for the ages. Unbelievable. It feels like it really happened. Like it should be in like Major League Baseball's most historic home runs ever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I'm telling you, that's
0: what it felt like in the movie theater. The audience cheered as if they were at a baseball game, that moment right there. I'm like, I have never experienced this in a movie theater. Like, the audience is treating
1: this like it's a real game. It was crazy. Yeah, that's that that's when, you know, the movie's like hitting when it's like people are that invested in the outcome of the game where they're like in, in pitch by pitch, che- cheering and yelling like that. And I know that has to hurt. Watch for you watching that
0: scene. The kid who was a great hitter, but could never hit a curveball. So you see Serrano has his one
1: moment and you're like, why couldn't I have the Albert moment? Why didn't I have? No, 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 no. Actually, Mario, I'll stop you there. It's the opposite for me. I actually looked like it was it was. You know, because I can relate through him. I'm living vicariously through Pedro Serrano. I've never been able to hit a curveball like that. So when he did it, I was like, oh, my God, Eureka, like, we have a chance. Like, I was like, we are similar in some way, even though we're not similar. But we are similar in some way. And he did it. That means maybe I could do it one day. It was like some fucking motivational shit. You know what I'm saying? It was great. So to this day, you still think you hit that home run? Oh, yeah. I mean, my best friend teases me all the time because I always tell him, like, I'm like, you know, man, if I made a comeback or if I did this or if I did that, like, you know, I think I could still do it. And he's like, yeah, sure, buddy. Like, yes, he he, he <laughs> he'll he just fuck with me. And, and he, he, you know, and I, anytime I even talk about baseball, he he just starts singing this made up song that we have as an inside joke when he goes when dinosaurs roam the earth. He's like, because he says that whenever I talk about my career, it was so <laughs> long ago. It was like when dinosaurs were roaming the earth. So that's yeah, my buddy who, who hopefully listens will we'll, we'll pick up on that. But yeah, that's the 12 year old me, the 18-year-old me, 22, and even 36-year-old me still relates with Serrano, finally ca- conquering his demons, hitting a home run at a pivotal moment. Off, guess what? Off a breaking ball, baby. Off a curveball.
0: <laughs> now, to drive the point home that Albert really considers himself Pedro Serrano, you are indeed wearing a number 13 jersey
1: for this podcast, aren't you? I, I You know, I, I will reveal it. I was a little bit disappointed, Mario, when I found out that we're just doing the audio because... Um, I, I think, you know, I don't even know. I, I can't tell you which happened first, whether I knew we were doing this, this, uh, um, breakdown of this movie or if I just saw the jersey online and ordered it. But I have a pretty authentic number 13, pristine, clean white Indians. Yes, it says Indians, not Guardians with Chief Wahoo on the sleeve. It's legit Pedro Serrano jersey that I, I was looking forward to wearing for this interview. Yeah, I felt bad. Albert didn't know this wasn't a video podcast. So he had his jersey already and I I was ready to go, buddy. It's okay. But now, listen, but if we if we combine the powers of my Pedro Serrano jersey and your um exclusive edition Major League Baseball cards pack, <laughs> uh, all of a sudden now we're basically like presenting what, quite the fucking offering to Joe Boo, you know what I'm saying? That's true. Hey, you know what? You're not the the best color man in the league for nothing.
0: exactly okay so anyway blah 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 it's tied two to two we go to the top of the ninth and this is where the fun happens uh the yankees end up loading the bases with two outs against eddie harris whose k y ball is not darting anymore and now we get which i could honestly make the argument this is the greatest moment in movie history to be honest the wild thing entrance
1: oh that wild thing entrance not to i mean yeah i didn't mean to jump over it earlier but it's it is it's literally electric like that talk about visualizing a moment like that's it makes sense that major league pitchers were like that that was actually pretty fucking badass (laughs) i want to come into a game like that like the music blaring the crowd going wild it's it's his song about his nickname it's like you know it's just it's so fucking cool when he like stands at the back of the mound and turns around (laughs) and just see you see the glasses with the skull and crossbones like that's that's some real i mean dude mario that's some badass shit right you know yeah exactly i don't know how anybody could not get pumped up by that moment no 100 percent yeah
0: and again like i said the people were treating and the, i saw this on opening night with all these people and just people in the audience were treating it like this was a real baseball game and like the, that theater was electric and this moment when vaughn comes in and you haven't heard him with the wild thing entrance until here they've been s- teasing at it all movie he comes in like it's just goosebumps on goosebumps it is so insane and even to this day when i watch it i cannot not think that i'm like Man, that was such a cool moment. I cannot believe I was lucky enough to see this movie and see this moment
1: yeah it's uh it's it's every baseball player's dream to come in in a big moment and the crowd is like literally chanting your name and everybody's amped up and it's like here we go it's go time the ball's in your hand like what a what a setup for this scene right it's crazy and here's the story I was kind of saving
0: for earlier and you will a baseball person will appreciate this so in 1995, the Mariners made the playoffs for the first time. We're playing the Yankees. It's a big deal. Seattle has never been in the playoffs. We have no business being in the postseason. We're, we're just lucky to be there. We end up in this game five with the Yankees who have Don Mattingly, Bernie Williams, Mariano Rivera. They're, they're a better team than us. And it comes down to that last inning, the ninth, I think the 10th or 9th, I forget. But there's a moment in that game that I will always say is the greatest baseball moment I will ever see in person. And that was when the Yankees had runners on in the extra innings. They were about to take the lead, and Seattle, out of nowhere, brings in Randy
1: Johnson to pitch in relief. I believe I believe on like one day's rest, which was like pretty bananas at the time. And this is like in a time where they weren't using starting pitchers like that. Like I I actually remember that, and it was it was amazing. The big unit, Randy Johnson. I actually, fun fact. I haven't I have another really uh, fun, uh, interesting tidbit for you about your boy Randy Johnson. You ready for this one? Absolutely. Can you name, so Randy Johnson, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is second all-time to Nolan Ryan in career strikeouts. Can you name his first career
0: strikeout victim? (laughs) I actually just looked that up on Wikipedia right before, so I'm going to spoil your thunder. You can say who it
1: is. It's my uncle, Orestes Destrade.
0: That's right. His uncle, the first
1: person Randy Johnson ever struck out in baseball. First person he ever struck out in baseball, which I, my, I asked my uncle about that. I was like, yo, so how did that happen? And so he's, Randy Johnson was on the Montreal Expos, and he's like, yeah, they told us we're going to face a six foot eleven lefty who throws 100 miles an hour and doesn't really know where the ball's going. And he was <laughs> like, great, I'm really excited for this. <laughs> well, at least your uncle was a switch hitter. He could have been lefty. It could have been worse. He was a switch hitter, exactly. So at least you got to face him from the right side. But, yes, that's uh, that was that's my, my little interesting fun fact there for you. <laughs> okay, yeah, but uh, so
0: I was in the Kingdom. Now, the Kingdome was an enclosed stadium, notorious for being the loudest place to play sports. I'm in there when they bring in Randy Johnson to pitch in relief. And we didn't know Randy Johnson had theme music. This is the thing that I told people to tend not to know. All of a sudden, the PA announcer plays Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. Wow.
1: That was his intro song? That was
0: his intro song.
1: That's badass.
0: And I remember sitting there. I'm next to my mom. This is six years after Major League, watching Randy Johnson come in. I can still picture it in my head. I can still hear the stadium announcer, number 51, Randy Johnson. That was the loudest fucking thing I have ever experienced in my life. I could not hear my mom next to me talking to me.
1: it was so loud and johnson was and it's a dome it's indoors right seattle's going crazy they're blaring this music like i can't even imagine the, the energy in that in that place yeah and randy johnson is fucking insane he's crazy oh yeah so he's got adrenaline
0: on one day's rest he comes in and i'll always say the mariners could win 20 world series it will never be a better baseball moment than being in the kingdom when he came in to that wild thing entrance
1: and that is the greatest moment i will ever have in my life (laughs) <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine that with a with long that long curly like blonde mullet just throwing bbs from the left side dude it was unbelievable <laughs> oh this will make you laugh even more the batter who was up was
0: wade boggs a left-hander wow wade boggs and i remember i had, I had binoculars so i could kind of see from the 300 level and i was looking at wade boggs i've never seen a person's shoulders slump more than wade boggs knowing i'm a lefty i have to fucking hit against randy johnson with adrenaline with a wild thing entrance
1: yeah, I mean as a baseball player, like in your head you're like, okay, you, you kinda of game plan for like who are you gonna face? You're like, all right, well, you know, this guy already pitched, this guy's like you know, this guy's like not active. The last thing in his mind probably going into that game was oh, I'm gonna have to face Randy Johnson again. And here comes six foot ten, you know, two hundred and twenty pounds of just pure just you know, heat coming at coming right at his face, coming and walking out of that dugout. Um, it's actually pretty fantastic. It's pure rage. If you ever see that game on like ESPN Classic, watch
0: for that moment And watch the fact that Buck Showalter tells Wade Boggs to bunt. And Boggs is like, fuck no. But he still has to try to bunt. And Johnson's first pitch is right at his
1: his face. (laughs) So classic Randy Johnson.
0: Anyway, so that's my big moment. So, yeah, here comes this wild thing entrance. And this is the scene we talked about earlier where Roger Dorn, he's had some heat with Ricky Vaughn through the the movie. He comes up and Vaughn thinks he's going to punch him out. But Dorn says, no forget about it strike this motherfucker out so there's actually some arc to dorn
1: he's becoming a leader he's thinking of the team not himself and that's that's an interesting uh, it kind of their story coming full circle because they they had they kind of the the writing is actually you know I, I, as you break this down i didn't realize i've always thought of it as like oh, it's just a funny cool like exciting movie but it's actually some really genius story writing how they tie in the stories together mm-hmm. like Vaughn Vaughn and Dorn hated each other from the very beginning. They get in the fight in the in the clubhouse when, in like, you know, Dorn pranks him at the very beginning of the movie that like he's cut from the team. Like you could tell, there's not two more characters opposite in the film than Roger Dorn and Ricky Vaughn, right? Uh-huh. But then at, at the end of the movie, they have this 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 moment that culminates like their relationship as teammates, and it's you know it, it was actually it's pretty good drama because you don't know what what Dorn's going to say. Jake Taylor tells him like get there early, you know, go to the bullpen, like avoid him. Like he he thought a fucking fight was going to break out in the most important game of the year and Dorn's the bigger man, swallows his pride and just says, "Go fucking strike this motherfucker out." And it's it's exactly what he needed to do. Yeah. And like you said, that's that's
0: not even the only one you have Dorn and Vaughn kind of being friends at the end. There's another moment I kind of forgot where Harris hates serrano because harris is a christian and serrano practices voodoo but if you watch the final game when harris is warming up in the bullpen before the final game he's got joe boo next to him He has adopted joe boo he does on the he does i'm mean, joe boo's on the rubber yeah. like the, the, the two of them embraced i, I didn't even think about that you're right okay let's finish this up i know uh, we got to finish this off here so ricky vaughn comes in strikes out clue haywood just I can't even say enough about this moment. It's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in a movie. Other than, like you said, Jake Taylor is mocking Haywood the whole time, taunting him with the pitches, which you you will you will uh, back me up.
1: That is what catchers do. They mock. They uh they try to fuck with batters. They do fuck with batters. Actually, one of my favorite uh – I'll give you a real quick about the catcher batter thing. One of my favorite lines in the film actually comes from Clue Haywood earlier in the movie. That's another one that I quote regularly. Which is uh, when he walks up to the plate and he tells Jake Taylor, he goes, uh, Hey, Jacob, how's your wife and my kids? <laughs> I, literally, I, I, have a, I, I have a couple buddies for my poker games, and I use that too like, religiously. I, when, when our dealers walk in, and I'll, I'll kind of be like, Yo, man, hey, Will, how are you doing? How's your wife and my kids? <laughs> Unbelievably <laughs> quotable line. Well, absolutely love it. But yes, the relationship of Jake Taylor behind the plate is the wily veteran just fucking with Clue Haywood, which, oh my God, I just realized is now i didn't even process it it's now full circle because they showed clue haywood talking to talking shit to him earlier Mm -hmm. in the movie and now the first time we hear jake taylor talking behind the plate it's back to him and it's like he's getting in his head it's fucking unbelievable (laughs) okay one one thing i gotta add we haven't mentioned this do you know the actor who plays clue
0: haywood the big yankee home run hitter wasn't he a pitcher wasn't he actually a pitcher in real life? that's a pitcher. That's Pete Vukovich from the Milwaukee Brewers in the early '80s. Right. A guy
1: who never really hit in his life ever. He's just a big fat guy. Right. Right. That's that's it's so interesting. And isn't uh and isn't the Duke who comes in to pitch for the Yankees? He was a hitter, I believe. I thought that too. There's actually two Dukes in the movie. It gets confusing. There's a Duke
0: who's the base coach for the Indians. That's he's played by Steve Yeager, who was the catcher for the Dodgers for many years. The Duke, who's the pitcher for the Yankees, is just some pitcher. So it's I, I used
1: to think that as well. Yeah. Oh, he was a pitcher. Oh, okay, I got you. He was a pitcher too. Another great Bob Euchre line, by the way, too, where he goes, he goes, uh, he he once threw at his kid in a in a father son game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a total ad lib. That's a Bob Euchre line. That's a classic Bob Euchre line for sure. Yeah.
0: yeah. So with that, we have Ricky Vaughn comes in, strikes out Clue Haywood. Although, again, like I pointed out, that last pitch being 101. That that the significance of that would be lost now because every pitcher throws 100 miles an hour nowadays practically. But I remember there was a gasp in the theater at the time because that actually would have broken the major league record because
1: Nolan Ryan I think was never clocked
0: at 101. So I just wanted to point that out.
1: Yeah, it's uh that that's 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 before you know really the game had changed and evolved velocity wise like 101 miles an hour. By the way, I, I, you told me you'd never seen 85. Like I don't think people who haven't played baseball understand. How hard a baseball, how fast it is. Like, dude, the difference between 90 to 95 mm-hmm. is absurd. Like, I've seen 90, I've seen 95, I've never seen close to 100. I can't, I can't imagine I would even be able to see it. Like, that's, like, that's lightning, literally lightning. One of my favorite things to do is that we used to go to uh, the
0: Santa Cruz area in California, the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. They have these U pitch machines where you go in there and a radar gun and you can show off how fast you can throw.
1: Yeah, yeah those are fun.
0: Yeah, and back in my peak, I would always just dust I mean I would I would always put on a show at those things. So I'd go up there and I'd just rear back and I'd get an audience around me because everyone wanted to watch me pitch. I only threw seventy three. So
1: compare that to what actual major leaguers are throwing. As a lay person to throw in the low to mid seventies, that's actually pretty good for like just a, a guy in a in a random place throwing, like that's pretty decent velocity, seriously. But it's very humbling when you realize that you get to the majors and Jamie
0: Moyer is throwing eighty mile an hour slop balls and that's still faster than me right <laughs>
1: exactly <laughs> pitchers changeups nowadays are in the mid-80s it's ridiculous
0: okay so final scene that's uh, tied i always forget the game is tied two to two going in the bottom of the ninth and this is where the indians are going to win it they get uh two quick outs and then willie mays hayes chops a little single up the middle beats it out as he does and you know he's going to steal and this is really i'll kind of set the tone for you if you want to kind of give the the ending away here
1: yeah, I mean, you know Willie Mays is going to go. He, like, again, another another part of his story coming full circle. You know, his first time on base was against the Yankees early in the year, and he kind of gets duped at looking down and gets picked off at first base. And you're like, finally, he's going to get to use this unbelievable speed. And it's like, nope, rug pulled out from right under you, right, Willie Mays Hayes? But now, again, here he is at first base as a critical run in this game and, you know, takes an opportunity where like, everyone in the whole stadium knows he's got to go, and he does it. He uses his... You know, that's the beauty of this this last game is all these guys had this potential with also having these big downfalls. But every one of those guys gets an opportunity to use that super potential in a very big spot. Serrano gets to use his power. Rick Vaughn gets to use his fastball. And, you know, Willie Mays Hayes in this spot gets to showcase that elite speed. And he he steals second successfully um, to set to set up the uh, set up the bat for Jake Taylor. Yeah. And let's not point out. Let's not overlook Dorn with his defense and his leadership.
0: Dorn and defense and leadership. Exactly. You're right. Yeah. So here we go. The winning run is on second base. There's two outs. Super tense scene. I mean, just an audience in the theater is like, in the in the movie, the crowd is like chanting and stomping their feet. And the audience in the theater was doing the same thing. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, it was That's so awesome. effective. So Jake Taylor comes up, our hero, who, unlike the other people, doesn't really have a specialty. Like, you'd argue there's nothing about him that was really stood out other than he's the leader. Right, right and earlier in the movie he has mimicked hitting a game winning home run that was a scene earlier in the movie so you think jake'll probably hit a home run to win the game but what i love about the movie is that's not what he
1: does at all jake is just going to do something ridiculous and trick everybody right and that's and i and i love the little like the uh the um, that scene between jake and lou brown where he like basically calls in the own his own sign he's like he starts giving the sign to lou brown and lou brown's like that's genius. <laughs> he's just like I love that. <laughs> and like you see like the wheels. Actually I, I would disagree. I think Jake's superpower is his like wisdom, mm-hmm. right? It's like his like veteran no you know, uh, you know wherewithal where he's just like I, you know, I, my, my body may have diminished and I don't have the physical tools of a Rick Vaughn or, you know, Willie Hayes or Pedro Serrano, but his brain and his like savvy is his thing. And that's, he gets to use his savvy. Think about it. Like that's, that was his, that was his superpower was he's been around the block and he can see the situations and he, I think he uses his skill in the best way he can.
0: Okay. Now I got to talk about the significance of this scene. Well, will try to end, end strong here. So. What Jake does, if you're not a baseball fan, you probably wouldn't get the significance of this, but we have a runner on second. Any base hit will score that run. And so basically what Jake does is he takes his finger and he points to left center field, the bleachers. Now, baseball people know what that means. That is a historic reference to Babe Ruth back in the 1930s, famously called his shot. The legend says he pointed to the bleachers. He hit a home run right there. He's basically being super cocky. Which, uh, again, non-fans wouldn't know that. Obviously, you knew that, right? That You know that with the, the called shot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Jake says, I'm going to call it, which, which is a big no-no. You do not do that in baseball. You don't try to show up
1: the pitcher, right? Yeah, for sure, especially in a situation like that. You're kind of just saying, like, fuck you. I'm about to take it deep. <laughs> so what Jake is doing is really just trying to get the pitcher mad,
0: and that's the significance here. And, of course, the first pitch comes in right at Jake's face. The pitcher's like, fuck you. Don't call your shot on me in the, in the playoffs, you dumbass. And so Jake gets up again and points to the bleachers again. And again, the whole point of this is he's just trying to piss off the pitcher and distract the infield from what he's going to do. Because there's not a person in that stadium, you know, uh, field, theater, anybody that thinks the slowest person on the face of the earth,
1: Jake Taylor, with bad knees, is going to bunt. It's actually a really genius play because they run like a bunt and run. So, like, Willie Mays Hayes takes off from second to, like, pull in the third baseman, and then he bunts the ball down the third baseline. It's actually a really interesting uh, way to do it. Yeah, explain to non-baseball fans why that's a big deal. Why? Why is it significant that Jake would bunt, and where would the infield have been? Well, generally, like um you know, when like you said, in traditional baseball with a runner on second base, that's that they consider that a runner in scoring position, meaning a base hit to the outfield will generally score uh, the runner from second, especially a guy like Willie Mays Hayes, who's calling card is speed. But Jake actually creates calls his own play where he basically puts um Willie in motion, so Willie starts stealing, so he gets like a running start. And then when Jake puts the bunt down, all of a sudden there's some chaos in the infield where they're trying to field the month. They're thinking about the runner. They're also thinking about throwing Jake out at first and it creates enough misdirection where now they try to make a play at first and Willie hasn't stopped. He has he's not trying to get the third he's trying to score. And we see in a, the climax coming as, as Willie starts circling uh third base and coming for home. And we see that there's going to be a play at the plate. Yeah. The significance to non-baseball people
0: infielders play back when slow runners are up because slow people do not bunt. So when there's a fast runner you can bunt, the infielders will be in. With Jake, who has bad knees and is the slowest human being possible, the, out, the infielders are so far back that they would be nowhere near a bunt. So if Jake bunts it down the third baseline, they're fucked. And you can even see the third baseman's like, oh, shit, because it's not something you would ever see. And it's such a clever way to end the movie because Jake beats out the bunt. I should point out thematically – jake running for his life trying to outrun his history outrun his reputation
1: oh that's great that's great
0: <laughs> he just beats it out at first collapses and cries he's battling his biggest demons is his bad knees right he's like he's facing him yeah, yeah. think of the themes that you've overlooked all the years in this
1: movie so crazy yeah you're right
0: okay but anyway willie mays hayes comes around third slides home there's a play at home plate and uh One of the greatest hook slides I've ever seen. I don't know how many times it took uh, Wesley Snipes to be able to pull that off. Just beats the throw. And just like that, the rallying cry from Bob Uecker, the Indians
1: win it. The Indians win it. Oh, my God, the Indians win it. And bedlam absolute bedlam which is another another callback in the in the movie mario if remember when they do the american express ad it's always like never steal home without it. it ends with willie mays hayes sliding in with the credit card and the and the game ends with willie mays hayes sliding into home think about it. it's so great yeah <laughs> we're think of this albert and
0: i are two of the biggest fans of this movie ever and we're still discovering stuff about it we might not have thought of before and i've seen
1: this movie a hundred times I've seen it so many times and, and like within this last rewatch and this, this conversation, I've, I've, I've just like the light bulbs are like, Oh my God, how did I never think of that? It's so great. And that's what we do on staff pick. So I'm so happy. I finally got you on as a guest. This has been, this has been a lot of fun, Mara. really. I honestly, thank you for, for having me on. This has been an absolute blast for me. And I, I, I think you can tell we both like genuinely can like get giddy about this. You know, just talking about this movie. It's fucking so great. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I
0: want to have you on again at some point, just because I know we have a fun dynamic. I want to talk baseball again with you, but I know you gotta go. So, what do you? I know you have a podcast. I want you to plug that so people can know where to find you if they want to hear
1: more from you. Yes, yeah, we. Uh, I, I have a podcast. It's available um, wherever you consume Spotify, Apple Music, all that good stuff. Uh, the, the name of the show is called "It's Not Polite to Ask," and it's uh, myself and my best friend doing a kind of shorter episodes uh, under 30 minutes, and we discuss. Um, I give my insights to dating, give stories from my own life, my own failures and successes and a little bit of lighthearted social commentary. Uh, we have a lot of fun. Um, we, we keep it really light and really funny. Um, so if you, if you'd like to come, if you, if you like to come check us out, please do. It's, it's not polite to ask is the name of the program and come show your support.
0: Yeah, and once again, Albert is a really great guy in real life. I've really gotten uh, enjoyed getting to know him the last couple months over uh, private messages and stuff, and I'm really happy this finally worked out. And once again, thank you for stopping by. I hope you had fun.
1: R- will do, 100%, and I uh, look forward to coming back on in the future and discussing uh, doing a little bit more of the Staff Picks. Let's do it. And once again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you do reach me, you can reach
0: me at StaffPicksPodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.
1: He slides! He is! Say! Say! The Indians win it! The Indians win it! Oh, my God! The Indians!